Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, about 800 miles away from <laughs> Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. We are the number one value investing podcast in the world. So you are in great company. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you're listening to us on a podcast app, hit that subscribe button. Check out all the content that we put on the internet. We have um, you know, four years of podcasts uh, on the podcast side and on YouTube. Uh, we have content on investing going all the way back to 2005 for free at focuscompounding.com. And then we do have a paid version as well if you want to get more access to actual stock write-ups. And you get all that at focuscompounding.com. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, you could learn more about that at the Invest With Us tab at focusedcompounding.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to um, dedicate a full episode to a Q&A. Um, uh, and uh, I know we had talked a little bit about that last week that we we're going to do a podcast on that. But of course, we went a little bit over uh, time with that. So I said this week, we will do a Q&A. I think it's good to do a Q&A uh, at a bare minimum, at least once a quarter. Um, but once a month is also is a good schedule uh, to do that. So to be on the lookout for future uh, questions, you could follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound or just email me um, your question to uh, Andrew at focuscompounding.com and just put in the subject podcast. So we could jump into um, the Q&A and uh, I did pull a couple emails and then we'll hop over to Twitter and really just try to get through as many as possible. And I thought this was an interesting question, one that I've been hearing a little bit more recently because of the overall sell-off in the market. And he said, I heard you guys talk a lot about stocks that are larger, but appear to offer solid value. Booking and Cinemark come to mind. Just curious why Jeff wouldn't buy a stock like Cinemark, given the value he believes it offers. And, you know, to his point, we do talk about Cinemark, um, you know, a lot on mm -hmm. the podcast. He said, I guess I'm just curious why you wouldn't invest in a stock that is cheap, even if it isn't underfollowed. I've been poking around studying Cinemark recently. And so this prompted me to think about it since I recently heard you guys talk about theaters. So do you want to answer that first part of the question? And then we could jump into his second part of the question, which really is kind of along the same lines of, hey, there's value in larger companies that you certainly know well and you talk about a lot. Is there something, is it like an approach perspective or is there something that, um, you know, would you ever invest in these type of companies? Sure. So, uh, you know, for the managed accounts and for the fund that we run, the strategy is overlook stocks. That's because I want to be able to, uh, because people kind of expect to be fully invested, whether they say that, whether we say that or not, when people give you money to invest in um, equities, they basically expect uh, that you'll be about 100% invested a lot of the time. And, and if you're not, they may take their money away. They may uh, say, well, I have money that I would, and I would put it in bonds, I would put it in cash, whatever myself. So that's sort of what you do as someone who picks stocks is for other people when you're managing their money is you tend to be 100% invested uh, as sort of a given there. Um, for that reason, I find that stocks that are not overlooked don't present enough opportunity to do things all the time. So I think I said before, like uh, during a crisis, yes, the other stocks do get cheap, big stocks do get cheap. 
since I've been investing, I started in the late 90s. Uh, after the tech bubble burst, that was a moment that you could have invested even in some very big stocks. Some not, but others, they got cheap. And that was a moment there. Uh, 2008 was a moment to do that. Uh, people probably, the one that's familiar to a lot of people is the pandemic, which is where we get to Cinemark. Movie theaters were shut for a while. They've been losing money. Um, Cinemark on like an adjusted EBITDA basis or something is technically profitable for, I don't know, basically this year. Um, but basically these companies are losing money and have been losing money just like cruise lines and all those things since the pandemic. So it's a once in a century type thing for a company that would normally make money under all conditions. Uh, movie theaters are pretty much recession resistant, uh, except for the Great Depression. We don't have really clear evidence of a downturn in movie going just because of economic uh, events. So this is the one time that you would ever see them burning cash for a period of years. And it's because the government ordered him shut down, basically. Uh, and then because of that, you couldn't get the slate of movies that you wanted because obviously you're not going to release movies that you spent a lot of money making until you get people back in theaters. People aren't going to go back in theaters until there's a lot of uh, product for them to see. So that shutdown, though brief, caused years of losses. So it's a crisis. So once in a 50 year, once in a 100 year, whatever, it's an unprecedented crisis. And that's why you have a possibility to invest in it. Uh, it will be incredibly volatile because it's not an overlooked stock. So you should know that you're trading a significant amount of, when you buy something that's very liquid um, and not overlooked, you probably don't realize as much. With an overlooked stock, you realize, oh, I've got illiquidity, I've got all that. You may not realize that you're going to have incredible volatility, especially even very high beta, even it, it, that when that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like the fact that we're maybe heading into recession seems to affect movie theater stocks, even though that makes no sense. Uh, so you see the beta on that 2.2, right? Yeah. That's incredibly high beta. And that's probably explained in large part by the incredible share turnover, um, which is even more incredible than it appears because there is some insider ownership. There, there's a major um, shareholder and, the, and there's some others there. So even the part that turns over more turns over, uh, the, the part that floats turns over even more than that appears. So you're talking an incredible amount just in terms of daily volume, you know, um, even fairly large. I mean, it's incredible what the, the um, volume numbers are that you see on these on at all volatile days for the market and, and not just Cinemark, even other ones that are um, AMC, Marcus, Reading, any movie theater stock in the US has surprisingly high volume each day. So that's the reason why. Uh, so you should know that you're going to have very high volatility, uh, especially tied to the market, whether that is legitimate or not. Um, in fact, for many people, I think that, you know, uh, your experience, if you were to buy like a leap or something of Cinemark versus if you were to buy the stock is probably not going to be all that radically different just because most people are going to have trouble holding the stock um, due to the extreme volatility that they have. So they're almost going to think of it like an option in their mind. Uh, I don't think it's very good in terms of like the price that you're going to get on stuff because it's so volatile to buy something that's so volatile as an option. But I think that that's what's going to happen with most people. Your holding period probably is going to be long. Uh, but if you were to do that, like Buffett will do that in an Occidental or something like that, that's a big, volatile, liquid stock, uh, and he'll hold it, um, then you have an opportunity. It's because of that. And it's not an overlooked stock, but you have a great opportunity. And that's how it was for you out of 2008 as well, correct? I mean, you were selling these less followed companies and turning your portfolio over because some of these 
very large, well-followed, high-quality businesses just got so mm-hmm. cheap. Isn't that correct? Right, exactly. Um, and again, it was somewhat crisis-related. Uh, some of the things that I bought there that people would recognize, IMS Health, there was legislation, Obamacare, that sort of thing. It wasn't known what Obamacare would be yet exactly. Um, and there was talk by some things about basically things that would get rid of IMS Health's core business. Um, so that's an existential threat to the company, right? That some senators talking about. Um, uh, FICO, biggest credit contraction, biggest, you know, whatever in the United States in forever. And it's a company that provides uh, scores for basically consumer credit. So people are thinking, well, that'll never come back because when I have house prices drop like this, when no one's their credit card balances, people are going to start paying them off and stuff. When has the consumer ever tried to save so much and to borrow so little and banks will never lend to consumers, you know, that sort of thing. So that was a reason why it was cheap at that point. Uh, even back then, Omnicom was fairly cheap because people thought well, we're going to the worst recession since the Great Depression. So everyone get, tries to get advertising stocks before a recession every time. So they're doing it now, as you can see. Um, so if you think it's going to be a really bad recession, then you better really get out of it. And, uh, you know, when I bought the stock, I figured it'll be a bad three years or so before we get, you know, things moving forward at all in terms of advertising if you have a bad recession. But, uh, so that's what you have to do. You have to say just, you know, that in these kinds of stocks, of course, the news is terrible because no one, it's not overlooked. Everyone knows that if you were going to bet on advertising or against advertising, you do it through this. In fact, some, to some extent, that's why they're so liquid is because of what you get with some of these with hedge funds and some other things like that, where as an example, if you take Cinemark, Cinemark, I think is in consumer discretionary for like index purposes and things like that. And I think they get shorted as part of that, uh, even if there's n- someone has no opinion on movie theaters. They're just saying, I'm going to be short Coles, I'm going to be short Cinemark, I'm going to get whatever, and they're long other things on the other side. And sometimes, and the good thing about that is it gives you tons and tons of uh, turnover in the stock, and so you can get in and out as an individual, or you're going to fund or whatever, if you want to. That's how you know Buffett gets a huge position in Occidental. You could take a really big position in, in Cinemark. It doesn't look like it if you look at the market cap. You think, oh, how would you do that? But you know, it's not hard for a fund to own 10% of a company, basically. So here, it's not hard to get $200 million worth of the stock because it, it turns over five times a year. Yeah. So in a very short period of time, you can do that. You know, We're partway through the day on a fairly normal day, and it's already traded 670,000 shares. And it's basically, what, a small cap stock? Yeah, which, you know, just doing the rough math on that, I mean, that's like, what, $10 million close to it. Uh, halfway through the day on Cinemark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Buffett would normally buy 20 to 30% of a stock in a day. So there you go. Berkshire was buying Cinemark. They'd be buying, you know, two or three million by, by noon. Yeah. So that's the advantage you get from it. And, and that's maybe one of the reasons why people like it. Also, instead of overlooked stocks, the other reason they may like it is because it's just more convenient. It's the example you go to right away, right? If I say, give me the best uh, example of a... Uh, this kind of novel, this kind of movie or whatever, you're going to pick one that's really famous, probably one that's really familiar in your mind, not really the best example, you know, one that fits enough. That's the first thing that comes to mind. So probably people are going to think, if I say movie theaters, you're going to think of AMC first, then you're going to think of Cinemark, less likely you think of Marcus, less likely you think of Reading and those. Um, But even those are extremely liquid for that kind of company when you really think about it. Absolutely. And I think his question is more so like, so yes, a lot of these larger, more followed, higher quality companies have come down in valuation. 
Are you basically saying that you would not invest in Cinemark or Marcus or Omicom just because of like a, a strategy thing? Of yes. The pocket of the market that we focus on. Yes, because I want a strategy that allows me to invest all the time because from investing some people's money and investing my own money and writing about things, I'm very aware of how brief are the periods in which you really get opportunities to invest in stocks and how frequently people want you to be doing things. Uh, generally, clients, uh, people who are reading about investing, whatever, uh, want you to bring lots of ideas, to do lots of things, whatever it might be, to be fully invested. Um, and generally, on most days, there isn't a ton to do with a lot of conviction. And there is somewhat more to do in less followed countries, less followed industries, less followed stocks, whatever it might be, to uncover something that people haven't paid as much attention to than there is by finding that crisis point in some other stock in which there's a big opportunity. And you can see that if we, if we do the chart of Cinemark again, you can give an example. So like I could talk about Cinemark all the time. I could research it. I could, right? So let's do a, a yeah, the all chart is that as far as it goes? Yeah. Try doing, okay. All right, so for some reason it goes back to, 2010 or so, uh, no, it's that 2007? Seven, yeah. Okay, so we're, you're a little below there. Uh, it was cheaper in the uh, financial crisis, I guess, or the beginning of the Great Recession, whatever that is. Um, yeah, it got down in early 2009. It was cheaper. It was half the price that it is today. But, and then again in the pandemic. But otherwise, you can see what the problem would be. Well, you can't exactly because we don't have a valuation and stuff. But the problem would be that generally for much of the last you know, 15 years or whatever. Uh, there hasn't been a heck of a lot to do in terms of buying Cinemark. We don't short stocks. There hasn't been a lot to do in terms of buying it, except for a period of now, which has gone on for a while. Maybe it's gone on for a year or something. And a matter of months at most in the depths of uh, 2009 and the depths of the pandemic. So it took one of the biggest financial crises in history and, uh, you know, an unprecedented pandemic in terms of the reaction to it in terms of movie theaters uh, to cause those prices to be there because the stock was prior to the pandemic, it was uh, at over $35 or so. And then it has since, you know, barely ever gone above 20, it did briefly. But since then it's been seven to 15 or whatever, uh, which is amounts that you did not see for a decade before then. So it's just what I talk about with, um, like say banks or whatever, we talk about banks. I always warn people that, you know, the, the issue is you could become an expert on banks or insurance companies or whatever. Sometimes there's very little to do in those things. Right before the financial crisis, there was very little to do in banks because truthfully, um, a lot of them were over earning and they weren't cheap either. Um, so, you know, like home builders or something right before the financial crisis, people could have debated because they looked really, really cheap. So maybe if you believed housing would um, have the, continue to have this big boom indefinitely, then you could say, okay, well, knowing a lot about home building might be helpful here. But you know, th there are periods where it's helpful, and then there's periods where it's not. And obviously, all the movie theater stocks are going to move together a lot and all that. So you could know a lot about a stock. You could know a lot about these stocks with movie theaters. You could know a lot about um, advertising companies. There's if they're really well known companies there's going to be less times when they're possibly uh, cheap.
have some great business and stuff there's going to be. But you know, the classic example for the really big stocks that people can think of today is Meta. Uh, we've talked about Microsoft in the past, which took an incredibly long time to come down in price from 2000 down to a price that was cheap. It wasn't an all of a sudden sort of thing. It, it took like 10 years of its earnings going up and its price not going up. Uh, but Meta is a good example where now people could look at it and say it's a value stock for most of its history. It hasn't been. It's because it's not an overlooked stock. So something extreme has to happen for people to have uh, it bring it down to a price that we would pay. Yeah. And the only other thing I would add as well, uh, if I can to that, Jeff, is that basically, I don't have a number on this, but the majority of our investors, certainly in the fund, are investors themselves in some capacity. So if you think about the way that they manage their own capital, let's say they're like a family office or they have their personal capital and they outsource some of that to us, they could be focusing on completely different uh, you know, parts of the market with their other capital. And then they're going to utilize us for this less followed, more overlooked pocket of the market as well. So I don't know, I think if, um, you know, for better or for worse, I do believe if, our investors found out that we were buying Facebook or Microsoft or Omicom or these just very large, very liquid, high quality names, they probably would be like, hey, this is not what you guys sold me on right. or this is not what I thought the strategy was. Yeah, absolutely. And it's on the other side, for people who are running big funds, uh, obviously they're going to own a lot of these things because they don't want to be completely um, uncorrelated with the index in terms of their choices. So we are, that's our approach. That doesn't, I mean, sometimes we'll be completely correlated just because everything is, but our approach is not to think of it versus the index. And so we would, we don't ever view not owning these sorts of things as um, having anything to do with making a decision against owning them. Uh, whereas obviously if you were trying to follow an index and beat it, then you're going to have to say, well, if I don't own FANG stocks, then I'm making an active decision not to own them. That's going to have a really big impact, you know, whatever it might be. It might determine 20% of my return or something. Not having them in if my in, if the index, there's so, uh, such heavy weights in it. Um, so we don't have any of that. We're just trying to take an absolute approach, which means that we're trying to do something. Uh, we're, we're trying to do something where I always have something that I can do. Um, and where if the market does not do well for 10 years or something, we can still get a decent return for people. I don't think it would be a victory if we ran the fund for 10 years, say like the 10 years that was from the early 70s to the early 80s. Um, and we said, oh, we beat the market, meaning we got a return of like zero. We got a return of like 2% or whatever. We, we lost money in real terms. We barely did anything, but at least we didn't go down as much as the market did. Um, we're trying to do something where we can make progress over time, no matter what happens with the market, how far out of line it gets. Um, and that's not the approach that a lot of people have, but it is the approach that we have. And I found that it's so difficult to have a strategy, uh, generate enough ideas to be doing things all the time when you're operating in the the less overlooked you know and the other thing to keep in mind is the stocks that we're talking about is less overlooked are a fraction of the market basically we're saying 90 percent of for most people at home listening to this uh what you think of as overlooked or not which is maybe a little different than what we do uh nine out of ten stocks you think are not very followed 
all the stocks that we're talking about here, the Cinemarks and the Omnicoms and stuff, in terms of how much they're turning over and everything, they're in, they're in the top 20%, 10% of uh, that versus the universe of stocks if you think you can invest outside the US, if you think you can buy pink sheets, all of those sorts of things. So that is limiting it to a very small group of stocks. And it means that people have to have a strong opinion, for instance, against advertising. They can't really just be against Omnicom because it's not like they could ignore the fact that Omnicom is there and is one of the biggest uh, uh, market caps and stuff that they could have in an advertising company. No one's going to say, uh, here's my opinion about social media, and I'm just not even going to look at meta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, another question that was emailed in, have you guys ever studied the theme parks? C's, six, or fun? I'm currently reading the annual reports of all three and wondered if Jeff would want to riff on the competitive dynamics of that industry. SeaWorld is interesting in that it is somewhat similar to Cinemark in that it still hasn't fully recovered, but seems like a business that should eventually recover to its past attendance levels. So it reminds me a little of the preferred stock analogy that Jeff used with Cinemark. Eventually, those dividends probably get reestablished. One thing I like about the theme park is how they tend to have geographic advantages. Unlikely that somebody builds a new theme park next to yours. Just curious if you guys have looked at them. I have looked at uh, SeaWorld. I was looking at it recently. You can look at um, um, SeaWorld stood out the most to me, actually, um, in terms of... I. We can look at them. I don't think the prices are terribly low on them to the same extent as like uh, when we talk about Cinemark. Um, I think we can see that in the chart. Uh, part of that with SeaWorld is it actually was kind of cheap before the pandemic for company specific reasons, mostly. Um, and then the business performed pretty well, actually, versus the stock performance. If we have... Uh, that you could see that the stock performance was very tepid uh, at a time when the business performance was actually pretty good. Yeah, the, I mean, this pocket of the market has not recovered like other stocks. Um, I think that's you know pretty obvious Correct. why. Well, what, and one other reason is uh, is debt. We have to keep in mind. Like I know people ask me sometimes about the cruise lines and stuff. They have an incredible amount of debt, which is going to be possibly harder in the future to have as much debt as used in the past. And most of these companies we're looking at actually have a lot of debt. Do you have any thoughts on the local advantages or the competitive dynamics of theme parks? Yeah. Um, I think that SeaWorld is a little difficult. It doesn't look that expensive, right? But it's a little difficult in that adjusted for leverage, which you see there is three times on sales, um, they're actually at a pretty high level in terms of revenue, in terms of operating profit, they're at record levels. Um, uh, most every measure that we use, they're at very high levels, uh, which is different than something like cinema. So I do think it's, it's pretty different that way. Uh, I think that generally the theme park companies are a lot more expensive than the movie theater companies. But they also have a more predictable future probably because probably nothing happened during the pandemic that really, except for taking on debt in some cases, uh, but nothing really happened that is likely to change customer behavior in the long run. It's just, there's a few years where they didn't uh, perform as usual, mainly a year. Um, whereas with movie going, it really did change things in terms of the, the studios. Um, so it, it does bring up more of a, I can see people saying, oh, there's been a real change with streaming and, and um, all of that then I can see people saying, well, fewer people are going to go to Cedar Fair 
and SeaWorld and um, all and all of those sorts of places. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look right now on the screen, I mean, 2021, they pretty much have recovered, at least from like a sales and a gross profitability perspective to pre-pandemic highs or close to it. Mm-hmm. Now, Secret Fair, if they restored the dividend they were paying before and they're an MLP, uh, then obviously the stock would be valued much, much higher. Secret Fair this is the example of in, from that email that really makes sense that way because it's uh, valued that way and because it was paying such a high dividend before and hasn't recently, that might have an unusually high effect on the stock uh, and, and you would get a large bump. Uh, in terms of a large capital gain from when it restores that dividend to those levels. I know we've spoken about this before, but why do you think Buffett has never really ventured too far into theme parks other than owning Disney in like what, the 70s or 80s? Yeah, it's a good question. He hasn't ventured much into entertainment at all. The only things he's done really is advertiser, sport, and media, especially the way he likes capital cities. and and um, uh, But really not big into the entertainment side of things. He did own Disney. And we know a little bit about that from hearing, you know, I mean, from there's some books where Buffett appears in the story. It's not, they're not really books about Buffett, but they're about different media things where he appears because of some things. Um, and we have some ideas from that, some of his opinions on that. So probably worrying that it's a bit fickle that way. Um, definitely worrying about the capital allocation, the people running it. Remember he met Walt Disney um, and that would have been a different situation in terms of his comfort level there. Uh, some of these have been a bit aggressive. Some of the the theme park things have been roll-ups using a lot of debt. That's not really Buffett style. Some of them are too, you know, they're just not the right time period uh, for when he was buying things that size. So I think there's, it's hard to put a lot of money into things like theme parks. He could have put more into entertainment, certainly. You know, he never really invested in movie studios, things like that. And certainly he could have if he was interested in entertainment uh, separate from advertiser-supported entertainment. So out of SeaWorld, Six Flags, and Cedar Fair, which one would you be most interested in? Well, if you're doing it as a speculation in terms of the stock and how much upside it has and stuff, then obviously Cedar Fair is is that one. However, um you do have to be very cautious, I think, about whether the same debt levels and the same economics using financial engineering work in the future the way that they worked in the past. Because um, most people, almost everyone listening to this, has not uh, invested during a period which could be more similar to what you see in the future in terms of debt. So one of the, the easiest things for people to miscalculate right now are things like appropriate EBITDA levels with debt, uh, debts. Um, servicing debt, whether you can roll over debt, whether there'll be a uh, market open for issuing and uh, at what yields that would be done. And so that really affects things that are basically paying out all their dividends and are doing things for for tax purposes and things like that. So your REITs and your, your things like Cedar Fair. Yeah. What about Vail Resorts, right? You think about like the competitive dynamics of owning a mountain and a ski resort. I mean, that kind of also falls within having local advantages and um they obviously got hit through covid as well but just looking on quick fs i mean they're kind of right back to 2018 2019 levels uh, where we mm-hmm. sit here today yep uh i don't think that they're particularly cheap versus their like peak earnings same thing as what i'm saying with Sam market things that you know all of these that we're looking at i think they're you know uh Cedar Fair's dividend let's say very different from what it was in the past 
but most of these companies are much closer to what I think their peak and normal earnings are going forward than something like Cinemark. And several of them have higher multiples too. So I do think that they're way, way more expensive on a relative basis to what they sort of, if you're trying to figure out what intrinsic value is or something versus movie theater companies, way more expensive. And then the only difference with things like Vail and with the parks business in uh, uh, Disney and those is you are going to have more uh, people traveling from further away and uh, a different kind of customer. Uh, You're going to skew a bit higher end on those things with Vail. Um, And I think that's fine right now, not a problem. But that, that is a, a factor to consider versus things that are very regional. So like Cedar Fair is the opposite of that. Those are much more regional theme parks and Six Flags this is to a lar- very large extent. Um, SeaWorld less so. But uh, so the, that's also a factor. And I think that we'll see a big change with that with the um, economy and with the pandemic is I think we'll see some big differences in terms of the nature of spending. So you want to be a little bit careful that I think that these ones that are more destination places might actually be reporting pretty good um, results right now. Actually really good. So, you know, like your Disney parks, this is the year where they should report really great results because you couldn't go to them for the pandemic. People have been um, starved for that kind of thing, right? Kids who are a certain age are two years older now um, that they wanted to take to Disney. And, uh, and people haven't had the outlet except for their attempt to spend a lot on goods to soak up their income over that period. Uh, conversely, during it, when the, we started opening up again and during the pandemic, um, that actually benefited a lot of the regional companies. Same things with casinos, something benefits the regional ones much more than Vegas. And same thing here. So I wouldn't get too excited. I just, I, one thing to be careful about is it might not be as far from a great year as you'd expect, you might you don't want to think, oh, it'll be even better next year. It'll be even better the year after that. Because I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for things like, like Disney and SeaWorld. Got it. Cool. All right. Let's hop over to Twitter. Uh, again, to be on the lookout for a future uh, Q&A, to be able to tweet at that, follow me at at Focused Compound. Uh, so for the first question, it says, for an individual investor, what is your bore on personal plus portfolio debt? Would you pay off personal debt rather than invest? Would it make sense to pull equity out of a home and invest? Is there a threshold for overall debt levels? And he put in parentheses, personal plus portfolio. Okay. Um, So we're not personal personal financial. financial. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So that's the first thing. I think the most important thing is to do what will make will put you in a position. This is true for all sorts of investing things I always say. What you really want is to always be in the best position uh, to position yourself the best for the future going forward to make the right decisions, not to force yourself into uh, bad situations that way. So we can mathematically figure out, oh yes, this would give you a better result than this. But there's some issues with that. So generally compared to most people, I would always suggest more cash, always. I suggest that in portfolios, I suggest that personally, uh, as opposed to uh, less debt, for instance, more cash on hand, rather than focusing on just like net debt and things like that. I think that people often feel uh, that they can make better decisions if they have some liquidity. So I think that that's, so for instance, the suggestions that people would make about like, 
here's how much you can afford to own in a home. Let's say put stocks aside for a second. You couldn't invest in stocks. You could only invest in real estate. You can only invest in a home. Uh, you could figure out mathematically, here's the payment level that you're able to handle. Here's what you should do because the home's going to have a positive return, whatever. I think that's going to over-suggest how much you should, uh, how, how little cash you need uh, if basically you're going to have no cash left over after you put it and made that investment. So it's the same thing with me for stocks, for portfolios. I generally would say that people should um, have more, put less into a portfolio than they actually have than most people suggest. Uh, I, th I think that having some cash will help people make better decisions. So that's the first thing. So, uh, and debt is just a more extreme example of that, that the more debt you have, that's um, sort of like the most extreme version of not having sufficient cash. Um, obviously, yes, it, it does, it can, it often does uh, make sense to pull equity out of a home and invest, sure. Um, I think the big advantage to a home uh, that I've said before is that, you know, for most people, it's going to work out well, uh, having nothing to do with the asset. It's just having to do with the way it forces you into a savings plan. So the nature of what it's doing in terms of putting you in a real asset, uh, leveraging you up somewhat, but not leveraging a way in which you ever have to uh, go to a market to, because you have a, in the US, you, you have a, a fixed loan, most likely um, going to the market to, to, require the liquidity. So basically it's, it sets you up in a situation where whatever happens, if you live in the house long enough, you just have to keep making these payments over this period uh, that are basically fixed at the same level. So as long as you know, going into it, that you just have to hit these levels, then you're able to do this. And it's basically keeping you in the market of a real asset for a very long time. And it's doing it with leverage applied and some benefits in terms of tax and stuff. There's some very real costs in other ways. So I think uh, for a lot of people, homes are better investment even than uh, stock portfolios, but purely because of what their behavior will be. The, if you were, if if there was a system that was forcing the same behavior on you in the stock portfolio, stock portfolio would be better than a home. So, uh, so, so my worry there would be if you take money out, uh, pull equity out of a home to invest, is not uh, the performance of the assets there, but is that your behavior will be different. Yeah. So it's really a behavioral thing for you. Yeah, definitely. Now, what are your thoughts on? keeping cash aside as opposed, are you referring to basically like, let's say somebody inherits or comes into, let's say a hundred thousand dollars. Are you saying being comfortable keeping cash aside as opposed to feeling like, Oh, I got to go find 10 stocks and put this cash to work today. I mean, are you kind of talking about Charlie Munger, uh, that famous quote where he says like, how do you get rich is by keeping, I mean, we don't use We don't need to use $10 million, but I think in his quote, it was by keeping $10 million in a checking account and waiting for basically a no brainer investment. I mean, how are you kind of thinking about right. that? Right. So no, I'm not thinking about the second one. So what I'm saying, and this stress this again, not personal uh, uh, finance advisors here. Um, we don't give personal finance advice at all. But yeah, the hundred thousand dollar example. Um, if if you came into a hundred thousand uh, dollars instead of a certainly, I'd never say you should have a sixty forty portfolio where you're forty percent in government bonds. You shouldn't own government bonds. But having forty thousand dollars in cash might mean that having sixty thousand dollars that you can invest in any kind of stock and feel comfortable with it because no matter what happens, you have forty thousand dollars in cash may really help you in terms of how you invest that other portion. Um, as you've seen with what's happened so far this year, let's say someone was just in the S&P 500 and in government bonds, or really any kind of bonds, but let's use that example. Um, you're, 
you may not have been prepared for what happened in the first quarter of the first half of the year. And if you had some in cash, that wouldn't necessarily have been a big problem. Also, I want to stress over most of history, when I say cash, I mean things like T-bills and stuff. I don't literally mean that you have to have it in a checking account, but it, things that have no, uh, things in which the value of them is their maturity. It isn't that it goes back to market. So if something's due in 30 days, 90 days, you're going to let it mature. Um, so, so that is cash to me if, if it's not something that you ever go back to the market to, to sell. Um, over long periods of time, you'd be surprised, and I'm sure there's studies where you can find this, how well cash holds up against other things, because normally you get paid interest on it. The, this is a very recent thing where, pe where people feel that there's a huge difference between, say, being in bonds or in certain other things versus uh, cash. Um, you know, there are decades where the return in T-bills is very competitive with other um, sorts of things. Uh, it's not competitive with stocks over a long period of time, but I'm just saying stocks are not an appropriate place for you to be with money that you might need sometime. Um, obviously, mathematically and stuff, yes, you can look, you can there, you can apply a very small amount of margin debt to an index and you will not go broke uh, if it is a small enough amount. But there is a level that is too much and you will go completely broke with that level. And we don't know exactly what that amount is. And if everyone started using that strategy, that amount would turn in to be lower and lower because of what would happen. Uh, Presently, it's a lot safer to use debt for some things than it would have been, say, in the 1920s when everyone was doing it. Generally, the less other people are using debt, the more you can do it, and vice versa. So if everyone's using debt, avoid it, much more so, definitely. But if, if you're the only one thinking about doing it, it is a bit safer historically. Got it. Next question. Why isn't float only the sum of the liabilities that are sources of float? i.e., why do insurance premiums and reinsurance receivables, deferred charges, and deferred policy acquisition costs have to be subtracted from the liabilities that are sources of float? I think I was asked this question in email. I believe if not, the person who asked this should email me, uh, and I will respond to it that way. I have no problem answering it, but it's going to be a boring and technical answer for the podcast. So, <laughs> so please email me if that's not what you've done already. Got it. Uh, next question. Curious on cash tag, Jeff. Thoughts on the drop in DVA, DeVita, due to the court ruling. Was it justified or even cheaper now? Are you familiar with the court ruling? No. What has happened? I'm not familiar with this. So let's go to DeVita. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it either. Um, we could look at a stock chart to see if like the stock is really sold off or what's going on in here. Maybe you could see when the court ruling was based on on volume or something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, there, right there, yeah. Looks like uh, maybe June, what is this? June 21st, 22nd. Um, but yeah, so the stock is down. Uh, who was it? But I mean, Berkshire owns part of DeVito, mm -hmm. right? So Ted or Todd, yep. my guess yeah. is probably Ted. Um, but where we say here today, price to earnings, 8.6 times, EBIT sales, 1.4 times, 10-year uh, median margins on EBIT is about 15%, uh, which is kind of right in the wheelhouse of what we like to see of a company that looks interesting from like a valuation perspective. Uh, if you look at the average three-year EBIT, it uh, looks like it's probably, I don't know, 1.7 billion uh, so where we sit here today on an EV basis, 16 billion. Um, yeah, this looks like a company that almost looks like a uh, LBO in a way. Yeah, definitely. And I know we, talk, we talked a little bit about this on the podcast a few like months ago. I think we talked about DeVita. Uh, but mm -hmm. 
anything that stick out to you? I'm not familiar with the court ruling, so I don't know how much we could go into it. No, we can't because I'm not familiar with it. What I remember from reading the, the 10K, DeVito, why I've never considered investing in it and all that is that it has a very large number of patients on which it doesn't really make money. Um, uh, and then it makes money off of like um, private insurance versus things where it has to take who are government. Let's see. Yeah. So here's Medicare. Um, as a result of that, you have a weird system uh, from what I was reading of it, where you're kind of thinking, okay, well, a small number of the customers are what's making them all their money. But on the other hand, of course, the system doesn't exist if not for that. I mean, it's not like the government could, uh, th that it, there could be such a system in which they lose money and everything. You know, these companies won't exist. Uh, DeVita or competitors wouldn't exist if uh, you had only the, um, uh, if you're only making money, if you, if you had to make money in the same terms, uh, regardless of the insurance. Yeah. All right. Next question. What are your thoughts about Japanese equity investments given Japan's focus on weakening the yen as other nations raise rates? Is another Japanese boom possible if consumer sentiment recovers and buyers prefer potentially cheaper Japanese products? Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Sure. I mean, that, that's part of the logic to it, right? Japan's really successful period. This is sort of the issue for Japan. Their really successful period is they're really successful as an exporter. Uh, they're really successful building great companies to where the competition that was forced on them was to get up to the standards and exceed the standards of uh, multinational companies from other places, US, Germany, places like that. Um, in terms of inside their own country, I'm not sure that they ever reached those sorts of levels of uh, improvement in the operations of the companies. And uh, that drove a lot of the export things. That's why you see, of course, that to this day, Japan um, is one of the largest owners of US government debt because obviously you had a huge imbalance there in terms of trade, you know, as people are familiar with, with China today. And then uh, Japan had lots of trouble when other com uh, countries became more successful in exporting uh, Korea and then later China. Uh, so yeah, it's possible. Um, inflation is very low in Japan right now uh, in terms of consumer. It is not very low in terms of things like uh, um, uh, further up the chain of production. So it, it, in terms of like producer prices and things like that. So there's a huge amount of pressure to have inflation and it's not happening. It's not happening in terms of people's expectations. Um, so those expectations could become unanchored and you could have lots of inflation and stuff at some point. As we said, uh, the government has yield curve control. So they're trying to keep things at a certain level and that when other countries like the US uh, are raising rates, is likely to uh, hurt their currency to a point. Got it. Next question. How can the intrinsic value of a firm increase over time if it is the present value of all its future cash flows? It's a great question. The answer is it cannot. <laughs> so that makes you wonder, how can it be the present value of all its future cash flows? Uh -huh. uh, the, the answer is that the intrinsic value of a firm can't possibly increase over time if it's the present value of all its future cash flows. However, for it to be the present value of all its future cash flows, you'd have to have all information about the future. And in fact, you wouldn't just have to have all available information that's available now, but presumably there'd be information in the future, which is only revealed, that's not known by anyone now. Um, and at that point, the intrinsic value would have to change then all the time. So the argument would be that if your intrinsic value is right this year and it's right next year, there's some exogenous event that has happened, right? Um, and so, so you've built this model that incorporated all of the information that was 
available to, that the market could have, but then there became information that the market did not have, nor could it foresee um, in the future. And that this keeps happening. It's the same sort of concept as like the um, economic uh, concepts where uh, they could reach some state of equilibrium or something, uh, except of course, then COVID happens or this happens or that happens. But in the real world, of course, there's always something of that happening. In the real world, there'd always be information coming in. Um, so the, the true answer though is of course that the present value of all the cash flows is incorrectly calculated in all of these things all the time that, that no one's right about it and that they're adjusting their models all the time. Um, and so they're basically admitting that they made a mistake before or changed their mind on it or whatever. But yeah, you, it would not be, it wouldn't change. It wouldn't, um, what would happen is it would increase over time only to the extent of the discount rate. So it would definitely increase, but it would increase at the rate of the discount rate. The idea is that the intrinsic value of all securities should equalize the return. I mean, if we're getting into economic concepts that, that financial economists have, they would say the, you know, the risk-adjusted return that these things have. But so you should equalize the return, the risk-adjusted return that you can get in any security in the future, all against each other, any asset actually, not just securities. Um, if we were putting risk aside, then it would mean the, the, the part that we're determining intrinsic value, which has to do with um, uh, the, the stock that we have versus say the, the value that equalizes with something else. What I've done, the only thing I've done sort of in telling people when people want what's an intrinsic value is I'll say, okay, here's what I can do. I can try to equalize the return you'll get in this stock and the return you're expecting in the S&P 500 in terms of the expected returns of both. That's the one point in which we can kind of come together and say, okay, this is a somewhat reasonable way to think about intrinsic value. So we could say, at what point does owning Cinemark versus owning the S&P 500 from this point forward exactly equal? And only when it seems like owning Cinemark would give you much better return than owning the S&P 500 should you own Cinemark. That's something that I think common sense that people could think and that that makes sense. That is not, in fact, how economists would think about it or how the, they're set up to do the present value calculation because, of course, they're introducing the concepts of risk and all that. So I guess to just hit on that point, basically what you're saying is, let's say over a three or five or 10 year period, you underwrite a return in Cinemark that let's say is, I don't know, 15% per year, right? Annualized over that time period. And you think maybe over that same time period, the S&P 500 will do, you know, 8%, which, you know, seven, eight, 9% on average or whatever. You're basically saying that, sure, at, in that scenario, it would make sense to buy Cinemark. Correct. Yes. And I, and that's at least helpful because a lot of people have to decide between an index or an index like return, which you could assume if I randomly pick things or if I stick with the portfolio I have now and never adjust it, those sort of things, it might be like an index. So should I make a switch or not saying some index, you know, and this other thing I'm picking is a reasonable way to choose between them, the trade-offs between them, which, which gets to a real practical sort of thing here. Of course, what's happening is that if you're doing this calculation, this DCF, the, the change in the value that you're going to come up with is only going to, it's only going to change over time to the extent of the discount rate, if you're correct in doing this. So it's the, you know, um, the problem with that, of course, is um, now not everyone updated their models, but really the discount rate in a few months this year moved dramatically, moved a huge amount, right? So that would actually change the intrinsic value. In fact, it would lower quite a bit. So the intrinsic value would go down for, for most stocks. 
uh, um, by quite a bit when you update those DCFs for next year, because you've now put into them a, a much higher uh, risk-free rate than you had before, or discount rate that you're using, which they basically just are adding something onto a risk-free rate. So that's the idea. Um, and yes, if you calculate it correctly, then that means that it's not going to grow over time. You're in theory, seeing the future, you're putting all those things into it. So yes, cap cities did whatever, 20, 30% a year for forever. Uh, so in theory, in you know 1959 or whatever, you're saying, well, I recognize what, how good this company is and what's going to happen in the future for the next 40 years. So I'm going to correctly put in that it's going to grow at 20, 30% a year for 40 years. And then yes, then you'd be correct because you predicted what the future would be. And then each year you, you, it wouldn't look like it was growing. What are your thoughts on reverse DCFs? I mean, in theory, is it an interesting idea, but it's just very hard like in practice to actually go through all the variables and see what the current stock price is telling you about the future? I mean, do you have any thoughts on reverse DCFs in general? I mean, I think it's okay to look at what it would take to get you a certain level of return. Um, I don't see why we're bringing interest rates into it. We're buying stocks, we're selling them to get some sort of gain. I don't know why we need to compare them to interest rates. Are we seriously going to be buying government bonds instead of buying these things? At what times would that have made sense? Um, and you know, to, to me, that seems very, very weird that we're doing something that that isn't really necessarily a part of it because it's to get an exact number. That's what people want. To me, I don't care about. I, I don't care what the intrinsic value is. I don't need to know what something is worth. I just need to know what it's going to return. I think that's the issue that people are facing is, do I own this stock or do I own that stock? Do I own this? Do I own, do I own a house or do I own a stock? Whatever, those sorts of things. Do I borrow money at this amount, like that question was, which is below the amount that I, I'm going to earn? Um, those things make sense. And all you need to do is ask what are expected returns. A DCF is basically taking expected returns and then doing something to that to get an exact price today. I think you can just adjust the price since we know the price, they keep offering it to us every day at some value um, and say, what expected return does that give me? I don't see why we have to bring into it like how much of a discount that is to what the stock is worth and all, and all of that. Um, yeah. I don't think we need a dollar value. We just need a yes or no to buy it. Sure. Um, okay, next question. Is it a better use of time to try to identify companies that have competitive advantages regardless of industry or to try to identify industries with favorable characteristics for shareholders overall, i.e. good company in average industry versus average company in good industry? Uh, the honest answer is uh, companies that have a competitive advantage regardless of industry is the honest answer. It's much more useful. Um, because it the... The issues with the industry thing is one, people will tend to uh, be that, that their prices are going to stay as low for as long, those industries. Uh, it, it's more likely if you're able to identify something that is that has a moat, um, let's say, and people don't recognize it, that has a better business model for the long term, uh, it's going to spend an incredible amount of its time undervalued as a stock. I'm less sure the whole industry is going to do that. So like, for instance, if you said early on Southwest Airlines, that's very good to identify that because you have decades in which it's likely that you're going to get prices at which buying Southwest Airlines and owning for a long time is going to be an advantage, Walmart, whatever. Um, it's a business model thing. And the stock's going to almost always be undervalued for a long time in its growth phase. 
uh, as people don't recognize the business model being particularly good. So some things that we mentioned before, you know, um, we always talk about copart and all those things, but like I mentioned, uh, how to joinery in a previous podcast or something like that, you know, building materials. I'm not sure that building materials retail or something would be something that people would focus on as being a really good way to make a lot of money. Though it has been in the case of Howden Joiner and has been in the case of Home Depot, for instance, uh, different businesses, but some similarities. Um, those are the things that will pay off more because you'll have lots and lots of opportunities to buy the stock while it's undervalued. Yeah, you had a good quote from last week's podcast where you said, having a business where there is no substitute for it, even if 99% of the people don't know what it is and don't care about it, is often a much better business than having something that seems very important to most people, but there are substitutes for. And I think that pretty much just like sums up that question. I said that? Yeah. No, okay. Yeah, no, that, that's, I don't disagree with that. So it's a good that I said it. Yeah, you know, I uh, Jacob McDonough actually tweeted it out. And then I also tweeted out, he said around <laughs> two hours and 11 minutes <laughs> oh. on the last podcast. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, I was like, gosh, there's so many gems in here. I We really, it would be great to get transcripts of our podcast. And I actually went through the process of booting it through YouTube, but then it doesn't say like, there's no easy way other than us like paying somebody to go back okay. and actually audit the whole thing because I could get the conversation, but it's not, it wouldn't say if I just do it the freeway through YouTube, oh, Jeff is saying this, Andrew is saying this right. and kind of have it going back and forth. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was a great quote and um, really just kind of sums up your, um, you know, your example of looking to find what you think is a, a great company and a business with a moat, even if it's in a less favorable industry. Yeah, that that's a really big one that uh, we probably don't talk enough about. That is the the substitutes thing. It's talked about economics and stuff, but just that the so important if there's a segment of the population that thinks there's no substitute for your product, or that there's no, or that there isn't that whatever substitutes there are, such poor substitutes at a very that you. Do, that you can charge a very different price or that them more likely them underpricing you isn't going to change things. So that's something Buffett's very good at. And the story that you told about the, the iPhone um, is a good example of that. That's where he realized that uh, for that uh, friend that there's no substitute for an iPhone. Yeah. Okay. So somebody asked for a Matt Hansen. He asked for a snap judgment on ticker CE uh, let's see, what do they do? Technology and specialty materials company manufactures and sells high-performance engineered polymers in the United States and internationally. Uh, yeah. Engineered materials, uh, let's see, the energy. We're not going to be able to... Uh, well, yeah, we're not going to be able to pronounce a lot of these words. But uh, yeah, I'm reading it here, so I have some idea of what it's talking about. Um, it, it's Irving, Texas. Uh, so... This is a Phil Fisher type company, not a uh, us type company, for one. What also. immediately tells you that? Well, it's a chemical company. It, it, it depends on their abilities to generally. We don't know all the details here. There, there could be other things. But there's some aspect of special. It's not very special. But there's some aspect of specialty stuff in here in terms of applications of it. We're not talking about pure uh, uh, early... Uh, um, most basic levels of chemical commodities. So we're talking about things that ha that are about marketing of it, are about uh, technical applications for specific things, and the way that that works together in an organization to make money off of it, which is is something he talked a lot about. 
I think chemical companies is a really good example of the sort of thing he, he understood really well. Electronics too, things like that. They're, they're pretty similar that way. Yeah. EV to sales, 1.6 times, 10-year median margins on EBIT, 14.7%. Return on equity numbers, I mean, 10-year median returns, 29%, um, but you know, a little bit all over the place if you look at that graph right there. Uh, 10-year Kager in revenue, 2.4%. Uh, asset growth, 3.5%. Uh, but you know, pretty significant free cash flow and EPS growth. Uh, so let's right. look at the income statement. I'm kind of curious if they're just, so they got to be buying back, I imagine, a good amount of shares. Yeah. So if you look at the diluted yep. shares in 2012, 160 million shares outstanding. And where we sit today in 2021, or TTM, 112 million shares outstanding. Right. So a few things jump out to me right away. Uh, one is it's not clear the company has grown that much uh, and that it might be pricing and things like that. Uh, we can see that somewhat in margins, but we can also see that if we just look at items like cost of goods sold. So looking at cost of goods sold sometimes can be a better indicator for a, a company that has a volatile gross margin, which this company does. Um, particularly, it has very high uh, in terms of the, the um, coefficient of variation, the relative standard deviation of the gross margin is incredibly high compared to what you'll see with many companies. And that indicates there's some sort of commodity often. Um, as a result, looking at cost of goods sold can sometimes give us a better insight and actually you could probably read what this company is saying about what it's doing um, in terms of real volumes. Much of what we're seeing in revenues might be pricing. A lot of it probably is because you can see that cost of goods sold from 2012 to uh, TTM does not vary all that much. And yet you're at 50% higher in terms of revenue. Could be yeah. sales mix, could be pricing. Um, we also see that just that SGNA is lower now than it was then. There's a bunch of indications that the company may not actually be all that much bigger, but that it may be enjoying stronger pricing, which could be cyclical, especially because that's what we see 10 years ago is the early part of an economic recovery. And what we see now is, is like later turning into a recession or something like that. We could look maybe at the... Um, uh, overview, so we can see the graph to see if that is true, if these match up with recessions, they do. So in 2003, 2004 or so, we have particularly bad results. Um, we don't have particularly bad results in the financial crisis. We do, however, in the middle, like 13, 14, in 2014, um, maybe it feeds more into things that are, it doesn't seem to from the description, but that would suggest things that are more manufacturing oriented, maybe Europe, things like that would have been affected more in that period and less affected in the financial crisis, but maybe the company's changed a lot too. Uh, from the business description, it did not sound like there was a bunch of stuff going into manufacturing type things. Actually, it sounded like it had diff different, some of those applications were food things, um, food beverages, personal care. Um, well, some of these, you know, some of those things could be going to anything. It's not telling us, but that can go into like, for instance, coatings, adhesives, construction, glass fibers, textiles, th those are pretty cyclical. Um, but other things are packaging films and, and some of those things are not. A few of these do seem to be uh, car-related applications. They, they do seem to be auto, a few of them, but they can't be all that many or it can't have been from the whole period we're seeing. Otherwise, we would have seen more of a, a decline in the financial crisis, certainly. Is that something that would worry you if growth on the top line has been, you know, what you think, I mean, of course, we don't know the business, but what you think is purely from price over time, is that something that would worry you if you're looking at it from like, you know, how do you extrapolate that out going forward? Could they continue yeah, the, to raise prices? I mean, is there a limit sure. on how far they could raise it? Probably they can't, is my guess, because, uh, you know, why was gross margin 18% in 2012 and 31% in 2021? Now, we don't know all the details of here. There's some things we could guess at, 
So one thing is if this is a chemical company, um, one thing that's unusual about chemical companies, uh, it also shows up in auto parts companies and things like that, is most investors are used to looking at sort of gross margin as variable cost type stuff, and then operating margin as after your overhead. But see, if you have a few large facilities in which you're doing um, large runs of things that are they're basically the same, uh, then actually the volume that you have at those facilities is going to, to a large extent, determine your uh, cost of goods sold. And um, then you, it may affect your margin quite a bit. And you see that. So for instance, with auto parts things, they uh, a decline in uh, the number of cars being built is devastating to them because it actually raises their costs per unit. And their contracts generally, this might, you know, may change sometimes, but generally do not allow for them to be paid a flat amount over the full run of some model, but instead paid on a per car basis. And so if there's fewer cars, if Tesla suddenly, like Tesla's going to deliver fewer cars than they did recently, uh, Stratic provides some uh, locks and things for, for, for those cars. Um, so as a result, it's going to cost Stratic more per, uh, per car. Um, and they'll make less money than if, they, than if their customer had produced more. So uh, a higher demand is, is going to be better. It's going to be better for pricing. It's going to be better just in terms of volume. You always want to do more volume in those things. Um, and that's what worries me here. Uh, you have very high gross margins uh, this most recent year. We, do we have, can we go to a longer term? Um, let's see. Uh, we can check gross margin in the if you do the financials. Yeah, uh, down the financials. Sure. Yeah, just to see this. So the variability here in the gross margin is really, really high. Um, just in the last ten years, because just if we do minimum, maximum, we have an eighteen percent gross margin year and a thirty-one percent. Whereas the middle point is more around twenty-five or so. Uh, let's see if we look at the full period. What the uh, ratios can we look at? It'll be easier for me to do it that way. Sure. Yeah. So if we look at we got gross margin there that we can look at. Um, yes. Yep. Right okay. Here. So ignoring that first year, which is wrong, this is 100%, you can see the uh, level of the gross margin, the variability in it. Some things that are interesting is maybe some things have changed in the business or something. In this most recent several years, gross margin has been much, much higher, much higher. And so that's something to investigate. That would be what all my investigation would be focused on. Because you can see how dramatic that difference is they've more than doubled their profitability on an operating business uh, operating basis in the last uh, 10 years or yeah, about 10 years uh, than they were the 10 or more years before then. And not only that, but we have the highest single year ever in terms of gross margin. And in fact, in terms of operating margin in, in more recent years, and that makes a huge difference. Um, it makes a huge difference in terms of things like return on tangible capital employed. Return on tangible capital employed, as you see here, is not actually all that great. And one of the ways we can see that is that generally we're getting a very low number in terms of gross uh, returns relative to total assets. I'm just doing that in my head, but um, the product economics here seem to be poor and the scale seems to be good. So they seem to be doing a lot of business, but the inherent profitability of that business might not be that great. So it, it seems like a volume driven business just from looking at the, the financials that we see there. Oh, which would be economically sensitive, you know. So, if volume is economically sensitive, then that is a concern because that, you know, volume and price tend to be very economically sensitive. Whereas, if we're looking at, you know, Games Workshop or something, there's no sensitivity that way, and it has excellent product economics uh, and not great scale. 
it, it, it has just amazing economics from even a very small uh, amount of business it's doing. Here, we have something that probably needs to do a lot of business to make money and is doing a lot of business. Sure. So is this a company that you would not be interested in? Yeah, it's a good example of the kind of industry I probably wouldn't invest in at all. Uh, maybe if they had very few product lines, they have a huge number of product lines in that description. But if they're getting most of it from a small number of product lines that I felt I understood or something, maybe there'd be some way I could figure it out, you know? Yeah. Like if all they did was, you know, let's say some uh, product that goes into automotive paint or something. Like if I could figure that out, then maybe I could understand that business and say, okay, well, the economics that might be good or whatever. Um, but, but a large number of them, and especially uh, things that aren't all that special, uh, would be hard for me to evaluate. Chemical things are very, very hard for me to evaluate. One of the best examples of uh, industry that I really would have trouble evaluating. For a value investor, though, you can, of course, buy them uh, when they look cyclically cheap, right? So um, if we look at the quick FS, we could give an example of what I mean by that. So um, kind of the traditional way of doing that would be based purely on... Um, what you think their normal earnings are, not even price to sales. So not book, not price to book, not price to sales, whatever, like an average earnings basis. So the problem here is they're earning 2 billion, yet they only earned 200 million in 2012. Yet we know from like revenue, cost of goods sold, things like that, the company isn't even one and a half times as big as it was 10 years ago. And yet they're earning 10 times more, which suggests cyclicality. So the answer would be in a year where you have poor earnings, you buy the company. And in a year where you have good earnings, you sell it. So like last year, they had a 12% operating margin. This year, they have a 23% margin. We don't know where that's going. But if you were just a Ben Graham type value investor, you buy in the bad operating margin year, you sell in the good one. So generally, like if there's a recession or something, let's say in their results, I don't know if they're, they're line up perfectly with, with the economy. Um, then you'd want to buy in that kind of year. You can see that because in 2012, they had a 3% operating margin. You, you, you've gone up seven times in terms of operating profit. So, so an operating profit, they've, only, they've uh, increased 10 times over the last nine years. But seven of those 10 turns, let's call them, sevenfold is just the increase purely from the increase in the operating margin. The rest of it is the other three is, is coming from other places. So basically, you just would be looking to invest when uh, you're in a low margin type year and sell when you're in a high margin type year is, is the theory of that. So that's a very speculative. That's what people did 100, uh, 100, 150 years ago. That's the way they play the stock market. They're a value investor, right? Is to, to buy these cyclical things when they're cheap and then sell them when they're more expensive. Obviously on multiples, it looks cheap. But if we look at things like um, EV to sales and price to sales, it looks somewhat cheap. It doesn't look unreasonable. But on PE, it looks really cheap. But that's because the E is unusually um, good here. So if you if you just look like a 10-year average or something, what I'm getting here is about, uh, we're talking about a, more of a billion than 2 billion in operating profit. So what's the market cap? Market cap is 12.2 billion. Yeah, so, you know, maybe it's, um, and then you got the EV there. You know, maybe it's a 15 times PE type thing right now. Uh, it's not less than 12 then you got to pay taxes on that. So I, I don't think it doesn't look all that expensive, but it might be an expensive, it might be a bad time in the cycle to buy it. I don't know, but it, it's, it's not, I think the 6P is very misleading probably. Do you typically stay away from cyclical companies like this just because there's a timing element to it? Or I mean, why do you just 
not really focus on businesses like this? Well, I mean, I know there's a yeah. tiny element to every investment, right? But I mean, there's a lot of value investors that love, I mean, Micron's always being purchased or talked about a yeah. lot of these companies that, is it because they look cheap from like a cyclical perspective? I mean, what is it? Yeah. So that's where the Micron and the ones like that is where we really get into the, the, well, there's a give and take a little bit of an argument about it because what value investors will say for some of these things, what they often say is that actually these are um, better businesses than I think, and that this will last longer than it appears to, that it isn't a, a short-term cyclical um, factor. Um, what I don't like is businesses in which it is easy to increase production, in which there's a strong degree of substitution, in which um, the market is global. You know, there's a saying, the cure for a high commodity prices is high commodity prices, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what you don't want. The cure for a high games workshop miniatures is not uh, high prices, necessarily. It may not be able to cure it. Um, because someone else will come in with something that seems to be a substitute for these things. When you're talking about things that are valued for their physical properties, those tend to be uh, things that worry me because people will come up with substitutes, even if they have to be engineers figuring out other ways of doing things using other techniques. Uh, people will be thinking about it all around the world. Right now, there's probably, let's say there's lithium is really high priced, right? So let's say there's some people figuring out in the United States or whatever, how to dig for lithium. And there's other people figuring out how to, to make things that aren't going to require as much lithium right? In, in, in the electric cars. They're working on that because they think that's what's going to get them rich is a patent on that thing. And then in another country, they're going to be figuring out how to do it through dissolving different things and whatever, so that there's a method that doesn't involve mining the way that it does in, in the United States on a, on a large scale and stuff. They'll have different methods they'll come up with for how not to need as much lithium. They'll have different methods they'll come up with for how to get lithium, even when it's scarce. And all those things coming together will um, be the reasons why I, I'm afraid of being invested in something like lithium, uh, be, because I don't think it will last. That's always my problem. But value investors tend to like things that are cheap on like the on 12 months basis or something. And so then the question is just, will this last indefinitely? Is this a self-reinforcing sort of thing or self-defeating? Commodity things tend to almost always be self-defeating. A good example is like, um, uh, of the kind of thing I would avoid is I remember there was this commodity. It's a, it's sort of used as a pigment and some things and stuff. And it's very hard to, um, to avoid using it. It's, a, it's a very important in terms of the, the product economics. It's, it's very valuable what it's doing and it's very hard to find a substitute for it. So, um, so people pay a lot for it. They'll buy it at virtually any price because it's a small price of the, the, the final product that it's going into. Uh, the problem, of course, is that if that's true, then anyone who, who produces it can make a lot of money off of it. So one of the big points was it takes like five years or something to get production going on one of these things. So that sounds pretty good. But then when I'm reading about it, one block being brought online, you know, what one, one plant or whatever, um, one decision that you're going to make of we're going to bring X amount on the, the, is probably for economic purposes going to be very large. <laughs> Some of the things contemplated in this case was like 10 to 20% of the world's supply. So like one site would produce that much. Um, that's scary to me because the argument is you can get in the stock and you can be in it for like five years or something because you're going to have warning before, right? They're not planning a plant right now, so you know it, right? But people are going to start thinking when they do say we're going to build a plant, or if two people at the same time say we're going to build plants and you don't know if one of them is going to blink, um, 
that suddenly in three or four years or whatever, uh, the world supply can increase by 20%, 40%, whatever. And it could be that demand will decrease during that time period. So that's the timing thing that you're talking about. That's what worries me about it. There's not much of a rational reason for why we're going to end up at prices that are really attractive. Uh, with, I mean, if you think about it, if you think about something that's a commodity type thing, uh, and you're a value investor, they always come up with explanations for why the current situation where we're making on you know excess profits is going to continue into the future. Because people are going to be so rational that they're not going to allow that to happen and stuff. But the problem that I always have with that is you're assuming like one instance of irrationality, right? To be in this case when once you're producing a commodity, right? And we're talking here not about uh, a company like this. Okay. I'm really talking about like, okay, this is it's copper, it's um it's lithium, it's whatever. Uh, to be in this, or, or as you were talking about with um, semiconductor stuff, actually, it's falls in the same category. But um, to get in that situation, we badly miscalculated in the past. People who demanded it, people who supplied it, badly miscalculated. So, like, you know, COVID's a legitimate argument to a certain extent, right? Because you could say, okay, we're short of it because of COVID. No one expected COVID, so so that's legitimate. And of course, no one's going to be so stupid to think that COVID is going to last forever. So no one's going to then reverse and, and do the opposite. So we're going to be in a tight supply situation for a long time in this because they're not going to say, oh, we've got to bring supply online to make up for the backlog that we have for this. So we're going to have a few years, we're going to make profits. But what often happens is they don't say we'll have a few years, we'll make profits. They're imagining somehow how this is going to go on into a long time in the future. And that's where I'm um, skeptical of it. So, And then the really bad problem with, with a lot of these is that anything that anything where it's more difficult to to make long-term planning decisions than it can often be an industry that has poor economics for the very long term. So um, if you need to uh, if you need to be a commodity producer and make planning for for mines that are going to last 20, 40 years or whatever, um, it's even it's just more likely that although you're going to have boom and bust, the average of those boom and bust is going to be uh, less likely to know that you're going to get even a decent return. What people always say is like, this is a commodity business or something, and so you'll get like an average return. That's actually very unlikely. If you want to find a like low price to book stock where you're going to get an average type return, look at Miller Industries. Look at Stratic. Look at companies like those. They are less likely to, why would they do things that are, it should be somewhat predictable from year to year. It's cyclical, very cyclical, but you shouldn't be completely uh, wrong about what the economics of your business are over a 10 year period or something of that, uh, of those things. They're just very cyclical. But something like lithium, they could make a ton of money for a period of time and then they could just not make any money for 10 years, uh, uranium, you know, things like that. So the reason with the commodity things why I like, um, why I make this huge distinction between the local things and the global ones is that the global ones, you're counting on the behavior of everyone, um, which both created the pricing situation you're in and is going to create the future pricing that you have. And a lot of it can be hard to figure out what we need. But I don't, I don't, no one knows how much lithium we need. So, and whatever it is, the calculation will be way off. I don't know if the calculation will be way off and what, and it'll be selling for, you know, a few dollars or whatever. It'll be way off and we'll have, uh, there, you will have nowhere near enough lithium to do things that we want to do, but it will probably be way off because of how speculative it is based on all the demand around the world and 
people's difficulty in figuring out what the supplies will be, where they'll come from, what methods. Got it. Next question. Thoughts on Spotify and UMG, both as stocks and businesses. Loved your movie slash Netflix talk last time. Guessing it's similar with music streaming, question mark. Yeah, music publishing is a pretty good business generally. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Spotify is interesting. It's like Netflix, you know. It's one of these things where I think about it and I go, well, what if it's a great uh, product for people? The people think that it's very useful to them and they won't stop using it, but the economics don't make sense, right? I was thinking about that with like food delivery things and stuff. You know, I was looking at a few of them and thinking, in 10 years, will this exist? Um, how will it exist? Who will own it? You know, which big company or whatever will buy it? Who will use the name? Who will whatever? But like, in a lot of the cases, I think it'll probably exist in some form, but the economics as they exist presently don't work. So how will they tweak those economics to make it work? Um, for a lot of businesses, you can just get the audience. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do in media. Get the audience first, and then you, you can figure out the economics later. That's usually how it works. Yeah. But Spotify really pushed that to an extraordinary uh, degree. Like if you took read, read one of the books about uh, Turner, um, Ted Turner, uh, you know, why he showed old movies and stuff. The guy liked old movies, but why he showed them is because it was cheap. Uh, he, could, he could get access to it. Um, you do not play a lot of music on radio um, to make a lot of money because it's really expensive. Somebody texted me after our, that last podcast where we talked about Netflix and streaming. And he said, Jeff is basically screaming that Netflix must buy Paramount or a similar studio in this podcast. Do you think that's true? I mean, if I was on Netflix's board, it certainly I'd suggest that. I, I don't know. I think... I think Netflix is probably, I think Netflix is probably, unfortunately for them, perceived as too important for it to be smooth sailing with the government and all of that to do something like that. Unfortunately, I do think that's true. Um, I think there would be a big fight for Amazon, Apple, or Netflix to do that, even though that makes a lot of sense if you want a business like that. But yes, I basically I was saying that. Yeah, of course. Yes, Netflix and Paramount together, that makes a ton of sense, right? Mm-hmm. Who's going to allow that? Um, even though I don't really think it's in from the consumer's perspective, particularly anti-competitive at all. Uh, yes, it, it merges two streaming services together in that sense or something, but you know, uh, Sony doesn't have a streaming service. So I guess if Netflix is looking for a way to do something that they think, uh, somehow will avoid, um, antitrust issues. But I think literally anything that Netflix does in terms of, uh, movie studios and things like that would be an, a, a political issue, certainly and maybe even an antitrust issue, even if there's no legitimate underlying antitrust issues except for that. And it is certainly not the one that wants to like test one of the first big things. I mean, Amazon bought MGM, but one of the first big tests of the post-Paramount decision world, Netflix would not be the one the industry wants to test that because Netflix would be the most hated, the most, no, you can't do this of them because it has the, the scent of the like fang type companies, the large uh, internet companies that have such a hostile um, attitude towards them in Washington and stuff. So they're not the, you know, you'd be safer going with uh, some old media things that have less negative uh, perception now. But yeah, it makes sense strategically. I just don't don't know if if they're at a point where there's nothing like that's possible anymore. Mm -hmm. Next question. Thoughts on Buffett adding to Oxy and would he ever acquire Oxy, Occidental? I think even since... I did this last AMA, 
news came out that he bought more, even more. I know we said that last podcast, but he has purchased even more stock. Um, and then any thoughts on how long the energy transition will take, as well as how long it will take to phase out, in quotes, oil and gas? Yeah. Uh, no, I do not have any thoughts on that. That's part of the problem. Uh, yeah. The answer of how long it will take to phase out oil and gas depends on a few things. One, government uh, government action, but price. You know, those are the two things, is government action and price. Uh, it's easier to phase out if it's incredibly expensive. It's harder to phase out if it's really cheap. Um, and the, you know, who knows exactly what that will do, but that's one of the sort of push and pull things that you have with political things now and everything is um, if you say we're transitioning hard to something, um, you are likely to drive higher prices. You're probably driving them higher prices now because of the lack of investment they've had over a period of years, which if you have been very supportive of that kind of investment would have kept prices down. But if you kept prices down, then you'd be less likely to make the transition. You know, it's one of these trade-off things. What everyone wants is a transition to green energy and for fossil fuels to be cheap while you make that transition. That's kind of a unlikely one to, to do because how would that happen? Can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're saying we're making the transition, I mean, this is how expectations work. If they believe you that you're making the transition, then the price of fossil fuels is going to be incredibly high. Because why are you going to be investing in additional supply if you're telling people that might have a 40-year life, but it doesn't matter because in, in 20 years, we'll never need gasoline again. So don't go looking for anything that can supply it for 40 years. Don't invest in that. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, NACO... Uh, is involved in coal company as a coal company and involved in other things, aggregates and stuff um, has some assets that theoretically they're not beyond the transition of coal probably, but three theoretically in terms of these plans that government put governments put out and think tanks and things uh, th they own individual assets that they can move around. It costs a lot of money to move them, but uh, that can be used in mining. Uh, coal can be used in mining uh, other sorts of uh, things like aggregates. Um, the life of those assets that they own in some cases is longer than what the transition is supposed to be. So you're making decisions about stuff like that. Um, and it, you know, your level of investment and things will be, will be lower if you expect uh, that that transition um, will happen sooner and will be more complete. So that I think Buffett is, you know, very positive on high energy prices in, in the mm -hmm. long run. I think you said that, that, you know, I don't know when the last bowel of oil will be taken out of the ground, but I think it will sell for a very high price when it is. I do know that, you know, that's kind of what he said. Um, yeah, and, and that's very possible. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. We talked about this just like when we talk about the Fed or something like we can make predictions based on if things progress the way that everyone says is the trajectory. But there are things about that trajectory that seem unlikely. Like their years and numbers that they're saying will be at, it's possible. But then their prices between now and then that that I think people would not be happy about if that happens. And then he says, "How do you go about valuing perpetual assets in optionality?" Or oh well, like, how do you go about valuing perpetual assets, land, and optionality? Okay, so perpetual assets and optionality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mathematically, I mean, you can get into it. They're, they're, they're two completely opposite things. So perpetual assets, that's always what I suggest to people to do is basically taking the idea of 
as if it's a perpetual asset, right? Then you got to get more simpler with it, but try to focus on those companies as if they were perpetual cash flows. And that's when I talk about free cash flow plus growth. All that stuff's really assuming it is perpetual in a sense. Um, that's not the correct way of value because nothing's going to be perpetual, but you're going to assume that something's going to happen in between now and then, and you know, there'll be an LBO and that's how I'll be taken. And, and that kind of is the point that terminates your DCF. But yeah, it, it, be very careful with things that aren't perpetual. So that's kind of the way I look at it instead is being very worried about things that aren't perpetual, right? NACO has those uh, coal mine customers that aren't perpetual. So you have to have a very different value that you put on that than I would put on um, the same cash flows coming off of, uh, you know, even, even Cinemark or whatever, just because I mm-hmm. think that that would be more perpetual. And then other things that are even more perpetual than that. Um, uh, then optionality is... Um, Interesting. Uh, basically, you, I look at it in terms of probabilities, right? And you're saying like doing a reverse, you had mentioned doing a reverse DCF before, basically reversing and saying what probabilities does this imply? So I, you know, I owned a stock at one time that had gone down a lot and I thought it was in real danger of going into bankruptcy. And people said, why don't you sell it? Uh, it didn't sell it because to me, uh, the, the stock would say at like $4 and conservatively it would probably be worth 30 or something if it survived um, without going into bankruptcy and without uh, issuing more stock, things like that. It'd be over $30, let's say, uh, you know, seven, eight times or something more valuable. Um, that implies such a huge percentage chance of bankruptcy that I did not see as that likely. So I, I although I, in every way I wanted to sell the stock, I didn't sell it. Then it quadrupled or something, and then I sold. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I sold it at a point that may have uh, been too soon and everything, but may have been acceptable from the possibility that there was a fifty percent probability of bankruptcy, but not that there was almost a ninety percent probability. Um, and and so think about that, but you know, reversed basically. But the easier way to think about it, it I would say, how do I put this? Um, Generally, with the optionality thing, I would say you can reverse sort of what I was talking about there. You can try to figure out, well, what's left over in terms of the price? Because, you know, say you have a stock that has some things and has optionality in something, you know, the lottery ticket type idea. Park Restaurants is a good example. You know, it's got the involvement with the possible casino project. What's that worth? That's hard because the casino project thing might be worth more than the entire stock. And so um, that's really hard. So you just try to figure out what is the non-optionality part of it. What is that investment portion of it worth? And then what's the speculative portion worth? And uh, ideally, you don't pay anything for the optionality. But the other thing that I have that, pro- that happens is if you ever read these reps and value investors club and stuff, the optionality is always a positive thing only. So the future thing is always there's this lottery ticket. It's never they might sink money into this thing. Sure. You know? yeah. uh-huh. So um, it, so like, like the ARC restaurant one is a pretty good example because I think that's genuine optionality in that probably they will not put there had been capital calls before but it's not losing money anymore so there haven't been real capital calls to dilute them so they're they're just unlikely my read of it is management stuff to actually put more capital into it even if it needs it and if it needs more capital they're more likely to be offered a buyout than anything else and then even if that happens they might still have rights for food things whatever but a lot of times optionality thing is more like oh here's this great tech thing or whatever that they own this thing right but then like it costs something to develop and everything you know um so i just use that it's like we were talking about movie things before if you have an option on a script it's not very expensive 
the, the downside is that about half of all the scripts, um, if you exercise the option to actually go into production, uh, have a negative value because they're going to lose money because you're going to put capital into them. You're going to pay $30 million to, to make the movie and it's not going to make its money back. So you have to be careful that the optionality isn't uh, going to require you to put in money and stuff like that. If it's pure optionality in the sense that we're talking about like the ARC one, or I think there've been some others where you're using it for something and it's not, um, uh, it's not a great use of the asset, but it's making some money. Value it as not the great use, but consider they could sell it off you know, to something else. Say, say like we were talking about the orange grows with Alico or something like if they have some bland that isn't very productive, but then they could sell it. You don't want to double count, but yeah, there's some optionality that you could sell it if, if it's not getting a good return. Next question. How do you think about companies that have negative cash flow from <laughs> operations in the current year? The said company has a history of producing free cash flow. Last two years had higher free cash flow margins due to positive working capital changes. And this year they had a negative working capital charge. Yeah, uh, probably does not bother me at all, only because of the very specific uh, explanation given there. So normally, if you want to ask what kind of business do I not invest in, of all businesses out there, what's the one variable that is most likely to have me say, I will not buy into this stock. It is negative cash flow from operations. It isn't even negative reported earnings or anything. It's negative cash flow from operations. Um, if... So generally, if someone's coming to me saying this company has negative cash flow operations, but you know, it's a very hard thing for me to ever say, yeah, you should invest in it. It's really risky to do that. However, for a lot of companies, depending on what the business is, and you want to figure out how this is happening, I'm always saying use like a three-year average of, of especially free cash flow, but, but cash flow from operations or any of those. And especially with COVID, this is even more true. Um, a lot of it is stuff that's reversed from one year to the next. So for instance, Walmart uh, would have increased inventories a ton, which sucks up uh, cash flow. And then it will have a lot of free cash flow next year. Um, it will have more cash flow operations as a result. So yeah, a trailing 12 months change in working capital for Walmart, right, is unprecedentedly large. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. 11.7 mm -hmm. mm -hmm. billion. Yeah. Would you make an exception for like a Cinemark that, you know, through COVID had a cash outflow? Oh, yeah. No, any of these things you're using your common sense. It's yeah. not a problem for me. If they, Yes, if they were shut down and didn't exist or something. I mean, if the actual business model is that we don't have positive cash flow for operations, um, that would worry me a lot. Uh, I mean, you've seen a lot of companies that have really been hit hard through this downturn because the hopes of generating cash was who knows 10 years 15 years into the future and all of those stocks are down 60 70 80 percent right yeah and um there are other things that you can overcome with a business model you know we've talked about before like having good gross profitability from an early stage then i might be more willing to consider and all that um generating cash flow from operations fairly early on again this is something that we haven't talked about like people haven't cared much about for the last 10 years or something but you know, if um, it's not going to be that easy to issue bonds, it's not going to be that issue to issue, uh, that easy to issue stocks or to take your SPAC uh, uh, as a way of going public or getting VC money or whatever. Then obviously, having some cash flow from operations is uh, what allows you to continue in business. And throughout most of business history, the way that all companies find themselves was generating cash flow from operations. They did other things uh, in terms of investment further down, but they did generate cash flow from operations. And I think we've talked about this before. I right know. 
Um, for small businesses, it's the number one thing that I would say to people. Um, the, the biggest thing I ever see with small businesses hear people when they talk about it. The, um, and I mean, small businesses to like running a convenience store all the way to, to um, something that involves a dozen people or something um, is there, they understand that they're making a profit, but they don't understand that they're not generating cash. And because they're not, you know, GE or something, they can't just go to a bank and say, uh, that I'm what I'm doing is making sense. I'm showing an accounting profit, but every month it's getting worse and worse as I grow faster and faster. I need more and more cash uh, to be injected into the business, um, and the terms of that are very hard and stuff. And uh, and then unless you have a business that's really simple for people to understand, lenders to understand because they lend to that category all the time, it's going to be hard to just be like, well, yeah, it's in inventory and and you know. So that that's a big issue, and we talked about that with like. Um, peloton or something right so you know if it all goes into those bikes i mean are those bikes worth a lot or not like walmart it'll depend but walmart will have to walmart is so big and some of the categories they got overly big on inventory and same with target um they'll have to take a big loss on it there's other things they won't but some of those things they will because walmart getting out of that is so market moving um and the market is so it'll you know, so slow to turn in some things and the turns disappear. It's sort of like how velocity of money went up a lot sometimes, you know, and then you get inflation from that. It surprises people. The velocity of, of some of these products, these SKUs that Walmart's going to see, it's, it's going to be that the velocity declined quite a bit. And that, that's what the problem was. It, they're going to say, we didn't buy too much of it. We're buying at the right rate if they kept getting off our shelves at the same rate, you know? So like the Walmart thing will reverse itself. You saw there like, it went through the roof. They yeah. had the highest cash reform operations and then they had some of the lowest. So you took a three-year average, you barely noticed this the last three years if we take it. Uh, cash reform operations we take, they had been around 25 million, uh, 25 billion before. And then you have the, well, it, it, COVID starts in 2020. But anyway, right before then they were at 27, 28, something like that. If we now take the average of COVID to now, it's actually pretty close to what they were doing before COVID. It's just that they had a record year, record great year and a record terrible year at the same time. So it averages out if you take three years. So always take three years for, for cash flow operations and free cash flow. Yeah, that's a common question we get. Um, basically, how do you account for working capital? How do you project working capital, et cetera? And just to smooth things out, like Jeff said, just always take a three or four year average. I mean, I always take a three year average. Even when we're doing these valuations, we're looking at you know the current market cap today as a general rule. Um, and then if we're looking at like operating profit or EPS, we're always in our head, just ballparking yeah. a three year average number. Exactly. Yeah. And with Walmart, it's really confusing, of course, because everything is so simple and predictable all this time. And then this is an unprecedented like inventory thing and all that that you've never seen. With the chemical thing we're looking at, it's jumping around every year. And so it, it might not stick out as much to you that it's an unusual year. But yeah, for any series of numbers that you've got, if you're not sure how reliable, how stable they are, just take a three-year average. I always take three-year moving average for anything. You know, if I was going to create an Excel sheet to show other people, that's what I would use, not single years. Yeah, and you even do that for evaluation. One thing that I think is interesting, like when you think about like from a probability standpoint, I mean, I hear you all the time say XYZ company is trading at, let's say, you know, 10 times peak earnings, right. but it's trading at 12 to 13 times um, you know, pre-COVID or like a pre-COVID average earnings. So basically you're thinking through the probability of, okay, you know, on both scenarios, 
you probably have a cheap stock, assuming you know the business mm-hmm. doesn't fall off a cliff. You're always taking in probabilities. Right. And that's why I gave the example of Cinemark. I feel like it's so much cheaper than theme parks. On one value, it might be similar, but just when I take all the values, that just the whole range of the, the distribution that I'm getting from it, any way of checking for cheapness seems really cheap for Cinemark. But that's why I just say it's really cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question. Jeff mentioned he doesn't see streaming as competition for movie theaters. Can you elaborate on why that is? I think you mentioned that last week. Yeah, um, I can. You know, movie theaters have had competition um, first radio uh, in terms of popularization radio and stuff, and then TV for a long time. Um, and I think over time, movie theaters, watching movies in theaters has become further uh, removed from simply how you use your time uh, to consume th- those sorts of stories. Um, there is a legitimate argument that people will say, like, um, well, uh, I'm not, people won't go to theaters because they'll wait for it to be released. They can see the same thing. And so that sounds like, oh, well, that's a very easy substitute. I just mentioned substitutes, right? That's a very easy substitute because now I'm just going to watch at home instead of watching in a the theater. Everyone says, oh, my big screen TV and my sound system and stuff at home is better than a theater. It's good. And I get to watch and come from my home. Um, you know, that, that might be true. I just think that that is more of a competition for um, other uses of your time at home than it is generally a competition for uh, what movie theaters focus on. You know, a large part of movie theaters is like, say, 13 to 30 people going out right, in the U.S. and in much of the rest of the world it is too. Um, there are other groups around that. That's your core movie-going demo, sort of. Then your superhero movies, yes, that can draw everybody in to a certain extent or whatever. And then the each, uh, but to the most extent, every movie around that has some demographic skew. Every movie sort of a cult movie plus that, that core group. Um, I think it's more issues of like competition for other uh, choices for going out and and um, then I think it is with uh, streaming at home generally. Of course, there's some competition and some substitution and stuff on a weekend. Uh, you know, if um, if you have the Super Bowl, if you release Stranger Things, does it cause a decline in movie going? Yeah, it probably does. Um, they generally try not to release movies then because they know that uh, the weather causes changes in the movie going too. Um, but I just don't think of it as much as competition from all sorts of other things. Remember, your average person who's going to a movie is probably watching, you know, historically is watching um, 10 to 15 times at least more TV than uh, movie theaters in a movie anyway, even though someone who's a real movie goer. Um, is spending, you know, 90% plus watching TV and 10% watching a movie. So for a lot of these things that people argue, I say cuts more into um, TV and things like that than, than movies. But I wouldn't have said that uh, if we're talking about very early on. Uh, movies were very different a long time ago. They were more general entertainment. Um, and when TV first came out, it was real competition for them and it changed what movies were because movies then had to become what you can't show on TV. A lot, if you watch some very old movies, a lot of them work well as movies, but they would work really good on TV. And then once TV was around, uh, they're just things that you put on TV instead. Um, so I think there's already been a big shift in that. So it's really not a movie theaters versus streaming thing for you. It's really a movie theaters versus everything else a consumer can do with their money 
versus movie theaters. Right. However, from the studio perspective of it, I think especially early on in COVID and stuff, we talked about this, uh, not early on, but early on in the opening up, I am very, uh, the one thing that I think has changed and that is a possible concern is the way in which studios were using their movies. Um, so for instance, Lightyear came out and I don't know all the details on how well received it is by odds and stuff. It did very poorly. Um, Pixar hasn't had a really successful movie in a long time now. Um, part of that may be the releases on Disney plus that's a large thing for people to, uh, for people in that core age group with, uh, for the kids and stuff to have Disney plus a core for, um, people who are, uh, fans of that. And mostly it's a positioning thing to me. Um, that's what I worry about is why you don't want to release certain movies in, in certain ways is because you could get confusion about the positioning of this is an event movie and you see it in a theater and that helps the whole lifetime value of the movie. And so the things that are dangerous are like um, giving another Disney plus example uh, in the um, uh, Dr. Strange multiverse madness, whatever the name of it is, uh, it ties into a series, a short series that was uh, that ran for you know uh, however many six eight episodes whatever on um, Disney Plus. The plot lines tie in. Same character that was in that is in that movie. That's the stuff that's dangerous because then you're thinking um, is Doctor Strange in movie theaters. Uh, special in a way, WandaVision on Disney Plus is not. And if it's not, then then what are they? Um, so that's why you want to be careful. And that, we talked about that. And that's a, like the Stranger Things example is Stranger Things is something that has movie-like um, awareness and culture and probably could have consumer products that are that, could have spinoffs of that, could have whatever. Game of Thrones was that way, you know? But most is are not. A lot of people watch TV in a big way and stuff, but the overall lifetime value of, of, a, of a TV show in terms of what it spins out and stuff is often not the same as movies. Uh, movies are really good at achieving a certain uh, positioning in people's minds that allows for an exploitation of that movie over years in a lot of different medium, uh, mediums and a lot of different um, like consumer products, theme parks, whatever things. And We'll see. Uh, I think what happened there that that may have worried me, but may have changed, is that maybe the stock market and stuff rewarding companies so much for their streaming gains may have encouraged some companies to put more stuff into streaming, take the, taking their movies to streaming faster. And now, when the, what happened with stocks did, and the reaction to some things about streaming, I think they've changed their minds about that, and they may have realized, oh, I don't know, Disney may not be sure that they did the right things with Pixar. They didn't have as much of a choice because they'd be criticized for releasing something during a pandemic where it's targeting kids. Um, you know that you know that that you're telling them you have to see it in theaters. Um, Warner Brothers certainly, um, probably. Uh, I don't know if they regret it or, or what, but they probably have some thinking about it. Was the use of our movies to boost HBO Max um, worth it versus what those movies would make if they weren't re released that way? Because um, it was very expensive how some companies used their movies during the pandemic. So that's what I, I was genuinely worried about that at one point, is the studios denying supply in the best way to theaters, more so than audiences not showing up, is basically telling audiences the next Godzilla movie will be at your house, 
uh, is a huge deal for theaters. Not so much that people wouldn't want to see a Godzilla movie in theaters, but that studios might seriously consider we can put Godzilla out on HBO Max because we'd rather have streaming customers than to make money in theaters. Okay, a few more questions. Okay. Uh, I thought this was a great one, just given on everything that, you know, the current economic environment. Uh, somebody says, are you paying more attention to balance sheets as rates rise? Maturities, who has floating rate loans, et cetera? Uh, I'm not really, because I pay attention to that all the time. Yeah, I was going to say, we always so, pay attention to that. But. Yeah, uh, it hasn't mattered. But yes, I always pay attention about it. And I always criticize the most is companies that don't have sufficiently large credit lines. They don't want to pay commitment fees on things. They uh, have too much, um, you know, not backstopping a, a um, having a credit line that's larger than your uh, commercial paper program, things like that. Lots of companies do it. They, you know, especially bigger companies with very professionalized CFOs and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, and I don't, yeah, I worry about it. And we've seen a lot of it for a long time from companies because anything that gets your EPS up a little bit, they'll do, even if it reduces the reliability of what you'll be like under different environments. So yeah, that's something I worry about in terms of like um, floating stuff and all that. That's, that's more of an issue with like on the bank side of things. Um, what banks are stuck in things that that they're more exposed to interest rate um, mismatches between liabilities and assets and things like that is more of what I worry about because there can be banks that are good businesses overall but have mismatches between that and and would be good businesses in very low interest rate but um, con consistent for a long, you know uh, interest rate environment or very high interest rate and consistent but not in one in which rates are rapidly rising for instance. Um, and it seems like we're getting some of the most rapid rise in interest rates we've ever gotten. So uh, that's kind of the more special thing because almost all those banks would pass with flying colors and capital tests and things like that. They don't really test them for the Fed uh, raises rates by 75 basis points at a time, time after time after time or whatever you could face. Um, that's not really what the test is. So there are banks that aren't set up the right way for that. Thoughts on how investors should approach companies that decide to go dark and stop reporting? Um, well, generally I would, uh, I don't know. It, it's actually very specific to each company. There's two kinds of companies that go dark um, or there's, there's several kinds. So one is something's wrong and they can't get their filing in on time and whatever they're telling you, that's what it really is. Um, so their accounting's messed up uh, either because they knowingly did bad things or because they, they unknowingly fail to do those things or they think that they're going to get things on time, but they can't get right with the SEC stuff. So accounting stuff. Uh, two, people who want to take the company private either because they want control and want everyone to stop yelling at them and, and all that and to run things just the way they want to do it, or they want to like strip it of assets and, and do horrible things to it. Um, and then the third group is people who just don't care um, and they want to save money and they've never really thought of the fact that there's a public market for the company that much. Um, since the SEC rules on this changed, most companies have kind of been forced to make a decision one way or the other. Uh, to be 100% honest, I actually think, I, I totally understand the SEC's decision and I don't actually have a problem with it. Um, it's a problem for us. It's bad for us as investors. It's bad for you listening to this, for the kind of investor you are. But I do, it's the SEC's job is, you know, to protect the investors generally and stuff. And it's in that, um, it's in the right area for the SEC to be doing uh, regulations like that. So um, the thing is, though, that 
a lot of times the the companies that are more of a an issue really are the ones that are putting out a lot of information. In fact, the biggest risk, uh, the one of the big red flags, right, of a company generally that you want to avoid with microcap things or whatever is a lot of information that is not gap accounting information, right? So what you want is you want to go into the SEC filings, you know, look it up on Anchor or whatever, and it's like 10Q, 10K, just the 8Ks for when they release it. You don't want lots of releases about, um, we signed this deal, we're on this platform, we did this, and a downplaying of the actual accounting information. So I actually think that companies have put out lots of information in the like microcap uh, type space are sometimes riskier than the ones that don't put out any information. But there's no doubt that not putting out information, not filing on time, things like that, does help a company do bad things. Um, more disclosure helps there not be that happening. Um, so most of these companies have decided one way or the other what they're going to do. And the SEC, unfortunately, that decision caused a lot of ones that we'd otherwise like to have information on to now be traded on a special you know, expert market and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then others to actually provide more information. So there were some companies where you had to basically contact them and say, please send me your annual report. And now they're putting them up on a website or uh, otherwise giving me information to OTC markets or something like that. Um, so it's good and bad. The actual question is, you know, uh, how do you think about that for a company? Uh, that's really hard because this is the one I can never give advice on. I see it one way and other people see it completely the other way on a lot of these. It's a judgment about the people and their intent and why you think they did this. And this is the one where I feel like sometimes I'm talking to someone and we can agree on lots of logical things, but we just do not see eye to eye on interpreting the behavior of people uh, doing those kinds of things. So sometimes I think the reason for it is pretty easily explained by um, the fact that they never saw the company as being particularly public. The family owns 40 whatever percent of it. Uh, they pay a dividend. They've never issued stock. They've never given themselves stock. Um, and they seem to have a really hard time keeping up with the accounting stuff and getting out to the SEC and everything. They went dark out of whatever you want to call it, laziness, um, just not wanting to bring in outside people who aren't family members, aren't people who've been there forever. They've, there's not much of a market for the stock, but there's enough market for their employees or whoever might have it. That might be the explanation there. Uh, a company that wasn't paying dividends, that had been issuing stock over time, that doesn't own a lot of the stock themselves, that had been putting out press releases, and then they decide to go dark might be a different reason. A company that has a lot of debts and, and a lot of things where creditors might be interested in what's happening with the assets, even if it was trade credit stuff and whatever. There's more possibility for that. Mm -hmm. um, if, you've not, if, you're, if you're paying dividends, you're not borrowing any money, you're not selling your stock as an insider or whatever, I'm a lot less worried about that. Um, but if there's things that you want to take advantage of, less information is better, which as stock investors, that's usually what we're thinking about is giving information to us so that we can make decisions about it. But it also could be you know, information about what you're borrowing against, where your assets are, you have a business that isn't very good and you have a business there. Being public creates a little more potential for um, difficulty in um, for creditors to have more insight into your business and what's going on and stuff probably too, with all the accounting requirements and all of that. Um, so 
I, I think usually it's it's not that hard to tell someone who seems to tell a situation where you it seems very um uh risky in terms of the people that you're dealing with and one where it doesn't uh the one that'd be harder would be like the incompetence thing where you you think that someone is very honest or honest enough or whatever but maybe they're not very diligent they're, they don't have a, uh, a real understanding of how serious it is to do this some people resign whatever they find themselves in a difficult situation and need to get out filings on time and then then they say okay we're going dark or whatever what did that mean was that some uh you know what exactly was that all about those are the ones that are harder to interpret but i think like outright really bad behavior and uh behavior that's just they never thought of themselves as a public company and i know you think of them as a public company but to them it was always a family company always controlled by insiders or whatever and you know i mean you go to one of these annual meetings or whatever that a company like that's required to hold there'd be no one there but them so it's understandable that they never thought the public cared yeah then you go there and they're very surprised that you're there <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah got it we could close out the q a today on this question which i think is good it says when do you put something in the too hard pile First, grinding through, trying to understand it. Uh, that's a really, really good question. Um, I try my best to not immediately dismiss ideas as either too hard or like just price or whatever. Um, but I generally am right about that. So that's the, the bad part, that if I think it's too hard, um, it probably is. And I think it's not too hard. It probably isn't too hard. I can usually tell that pretty early on. Um, I grinding it out. I do read the 10 K I read the 10 K mark up the 10 K, you know, I do that. Um, but like seriously, whether I'm going to invest in it, um, I probably go a lot further than other people do with that. Like there's lots of times where I say, you know, I'm researching this or and say, Oh, do you think you'll buy it? Uh, no, I think it's too hard to understand. I'll probably mm. think it's too hard to understand at the end of it. I, it's interesting, you know, um, when I say interesting, you don't mean it's, it's fascinating to me, the business or whatever. I just mean, it might, it looks like it could be a really great business or it looks like it could be really cheap or whatever, but it, it's just probably stuff I'm not going to understand that well. So we mentioned that chemical company or whatever. Uh, that's, you know, I, I know what categories of things are going to be hard. There's so many product lines and that kind of industry, it's tough. So if it was five product lines in a certain number of industries and and, and I read the annual report and it was really clear or the, the presentation or whatever. Um, what I usually don't do is um, think it's going to be easy or hard based on like reading a write-up by someone else or a presentation by the company or something like that. Um, so, cause that's what I mean. I, of course I can understand if, Someone pitches, this is why it's a great stock on value investors bubble. Yeah, I can read that. I can understand the math of how they did it and how they see the company. But it's too hard if I wouldn't come to the conclusions that they are on my own, if it's only seeing it through the lens of how they did it. So um, I think it's easier to disqualify. Like if you're looking at quick FS and you see, oh, they're not profitable and they have never turned a profit or, oh, they dilute a ton of uh, you know shares every single year. I think it's easier to disqualify that 
than if you have just like a pretty picture perfect company from like a factor perspective. And then it's just learning more about the business. I think about like Jamie Dimon, the way that he says he likes to read the newspaper, how Mm -hmm. he reads basically everything, even if he's not interested, because it's always a good to continue to learn about new things and new techniques and um, just new things that are going on as opposed to just like immediately disqualifying and not reading it because A, you're not interested in it or B, it's not something that you think you should focus on. You know, I try not to discriminate. If I do discriminate, it's more so from like, oh, the past and the actions that this company has taken in the past is probably something that's going to keep us away. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one thing to think about is, um, are you the kind of person who can grind through those things, read all that stuff and not be tempted to buy the, the stock or something like that? Then it's much less harmful to you because all it did is use up your time. And okay, what, what else would you have been doing with the time? You know, that's just a decision you have to make. If you're going to put in that time to do something regarding investing, this might be fine. Um, the problem I see for lots of people is if they put in a ton of time on a stock, um, they really want to buy it or really want to come to a conclusion one way or the other. And so it can be a little dangerous that way of investing so much time because it's actually changing their decision-making about things. The same things with economic things or industry things or whatever too. If they learn a lot about it, they tend to end up um, having invested all that time, having a real strong opinion. So now, because they spent all this time thinking about macro things or whatever, they now are going to make investment decisions based on, yes, I think there's going to be a recession in uh, 2022, not 2023, or 2023, not 22, whatever. Um, there's nothing wrong with reading all that stuff, learning all those things. It's going to help you understand other uh, things. But if it really affects your um, decision-making, and for some people it does, that if they really research something, it's going to really affect whether they can just learn a lot about it and then not act on it, you can learn a lot about it and not act on it, then I would say things that look like they might be interesting, and maybe this is learning from other investors or whatever, but seem too hard now, could be ones that you should grind through. So like when I say a bank or insurance company or whatever, it's only if you read 15 of them first that you find it easy to read the 10Ks of them later. Like it seems fairly easy to learn about a bunch of banks, not all banks, but in certain categories, it doesn't seem that difficult, but that's because within that category of, um, say, CNI lending or whatever, I've read a, I would have read a couple dozen um, 10Ks and seen some call reports and stuff before then. So then I'm saying, uh, well, it doesn't seem that hard. Another bank where I'm saying it seems really hard, it also was more legitimately that it might really be hard because I've read about a lot of them, and this one seems difficult for me to understand. That means something a lot more. Uh, then people may realize when someone talks to me about it and I, I don't think they realize when I say like, this is really hard for me to understand in some industries, that's a pretty serious warning sign, right? If I'm saying I've read hundreds of these things and this one stands out to me as something I don't think I'll ever be able to understand. That's very different than me saying, I don't think I'll be able to understand um, what exactly it is that this, um, uh, semiconductor company does or, or whatever, you know, um, because it's something outside of that. Uh, so the only way to learn enough about a lot of um, industries and businesses is to read a lot of the 10Ks to get some familiarity with it. Um, the more that you think 
I would say the, the other thing is the more that you think, the closer it is to where you already have experience, or maybe lots of other people say it's easy enough to understand, and you find it hard, that is more legitimate. It's probably really hard. I, I've definitely found that true. That if everyone says, no, this is pretty simple, and then I look at it and go, oh, no, this is way too hard, uh, then I'm definitely right about that one. And the, the, because people are much more likely, a group of people are much more likely to think it's reasonably possible to predict certain things, to understand certain things, than someone trying to come in from it and say, is that really true? Is this really as understandable as people think? Um, that's the one that should really be a warning sign to you if you're like, oh, I have no idea how this is easy to understand and predictable and all those sorts of things. But like, for instance, if, if Buffett's buying Occidental, he's owned uh, insurance things, whatever. Um, if he buys EMP things or um, certain categories of property casualty things and, and that, then maybe you should be able to understand it too. What is he, many of the industries he's invested in are ones that you might be able to understand or whoever your investor of choice that, that lines up a lot with your thinking about things, with your process. Um, if they can understand that category, then maybe investigate the category that they understand um, and try to read a lot about it there. And uh, the unfortunate advice I'm going to give with that is if it's really hard to understand some industry or something, um, what you're going to want to do is actually commit to reading like five of these things of different ones in the industry, not trying to read about one. So actually, if it's like um, that you're having difficulty understanding, like I said, with titanium things or uh, with, uh, with lithium things or whatever, I mean, um, you would want to read a bunch of things that are in that same area, same kinds of companies, even if they're just different parts of the world or different parts of the kind of chain of production there. Um, and that would give you so much more understanding of it from seeing it from all angles. That's going to be really a lot easier. Even just reading the first ever, if you've never read a retailer's 10K and then you read it, it'll actually be hard. I mean, they're very simple. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you've never read a retail 10K before, then you might be surprised how hard it is. Um, it's just we don't think of that because no one does that. Right. Like one of the first 10Ks that someone reads is probably some retailer that they know the business of and stuff. No one just starts by reading a 10K of a mining company or something. But um, so you, you want to read a bunch of them that are around it. Um, it's probably the best answer to that. Uh, if you have to do it and probably commit to pushing yourself to a certain amount of it before you decide not to. Um, Cause there's the two kinds of like too hard thing, which is you don't have enough knowledge all around the topic. Um, and so you're seeing a slice of it. And then the ones where you, there are reasons why you think it's very hard, um, which could be legitimate things about this is something based on technologies and things that are difficult for you to understand, or it's based on behaviors and things in other countries and stuff that you just don't have an insight into, you know? Um, but if it's something that you just don't understand the industry and you have to learn about it, then you're going to want to read a bunch of them, uh, all together or over time. And sometimes the best way to do that is just to say to yourself, well, this isn't about buying any of them. I'm just doing this to learn about it. Um, cause it's really hard. I know to convince people to do that, to buy, to read like a bunch of them all in the same category because they're looking for a stock. And so they won't go, no, 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 to like five in a row um, because they just decide, oh, I don't like this industry or, or get it or whatever. Um, it's really hard to convince people to like read a bunch around it 
um, that, you know, a lot of investors for funds and things do that where they read every uh, competitor's um, 10K. It's, you know, it's pretty common. Buffett's pretty much said that he reads competitors, you know. Um, so that it, a lot of times if it seems too hard, it probably is. But if it's not too hard and you think it is, uh, the case where that'll be true is that you haven't read about all the things around it. So you're trying to read about an auto parts company, uh, but you've never, but you haven't actually read the 10 case about the car makers. Um, or you're trying to read about the car makers, but you've never read about the finance, um, auto finance business, you know, that sort of thing. So you, you, there's parts of it that you just can't understand and put together at all because you haven't read the stuff around it. Um, but other than that, yeah, a lot of times it is, it is hard if, if you don't think that you could get an understanding of it, you know. And the ones that are the hardest for me is like we mentioned Japan or whatever. If it's something that I'm reading about that's something that's very unique to Japan and not understood by people in the US, some behavior or something there that is the entire purpose of the business, you know. Um, I'm not going to be able to probably, unless it's a net net invest in something that has to do with funerals or weddings or something in Japan, because we're talking about behavior, customs, uh, amounts of money spent on it, family things, cultural things that are just very easily understood by people in Japan who understand that and very not understood by me. If you say uh, a wedding and you say a generation of people and uh, an income level and stuff in the US, I have a whole vision of what is a reasonable thing of how people of that generation who make X amount of money who get married at this age what that is, what they would spend, what they wouldn't, what they care about. Um, I have none of that for Japan. So when you get into really specific things like that, then I don't have an understanding. So that's like the stuff that's more of a problem for other countries. Like people ask about like not having things translated, not a big deal. Accounting, things being different. I can figure out the accounting things between. It's like the, the unspoken knowledge that people in one country have versus another. No one's going to tell you this. It's very well understood there, you know? I don't think I could invest in some pachinko thing in uh, in Japan because it's something that's completely alien in the United States and is completely understood by tons of investors in Japan, right? Mm-hmm. They completely understand what, what purpose that's serving in that society. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that's more like, yes, you can immediately say, oh, I can't invest in this. Right? You look at it and you go, no. Um, so that was political things and stuff. I didn't invest in stuff in we talk about this in Russia or China or something um, because I can tell right away that I don't understand. I'm not going to get a satisfactory answer to that for me. Um, and a lot of write-ups you read will say, oh no, but this, don't worry, this family is in favor with this administration here. They're, look who's on the board. Uh, you can tell that they're politically connected. This is going to be okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Might be true, might not. I don't know. I just don't yeah. feel we'll have as good enough understanding of that. As possible, but like in the U.S., I've bought stocks that have significant political risk because I feel that I understand enough of the risk that I could take it seriously. Like I just mentioned, I myself bought it when you know there had been an article or whatever about someone saying, "Well, maybe we'll take this issue up in a hearing." You know? Yeah. So really, it's like the soft signs that you may not be able to see, mm-hmm. and that's the hard thing, right? That if you're going to lose a lot of money on something you don't understand, unfortunately for value investors, here's the thing. Um, it could very well be a very cheap stock. Um, I think that's one reason value investors hate, seem to really hate bank things, right? Because the things that's going to kill you is that it's going to be like on price to book or something attractive. 
because you're in all these industries where you're used to, I'll buy something like cyclical industries value investors love because you'll buy. No one really understands what point we're at in the cycle. It could be different than they think and stuff. You just perversion to the mean. They buy it cheap enough. It might happen this year. It'll happen, but it'll happen eventually. The the basic rules of microeconomics are applying there and stuff. So so there, uh, it works for them. But the things that they hate are the ones where like the soft sign things, like you were saying. Sometimes it's very, and it's baked into the stock price at times. Like sometimes it's everyone looking at this goes, eh, they're a bit aggressive on, on this thing. This worries me that this is happening. Here's where they're concentrated in things and, or whatever, you know, or the reverse. Like, why is it at? I mean, I've seen some things, uh, take a bank as an example. I've seen some things where the price to book is really high and stuff and, and whatever. Um, because I think people believe there's no way there's surprises in there, negative surprises in there. The people who follow and understand it and read what they're seeing, they're like, all the signs point to this is very uh, solid, right? The reserve things, all these things that they're seeing. And at other ones, it's not the case, you know? And again, that's the thing with like write-ups can fool you. Because if you read, I've read many write-ups of insurance companies, many write-ups of insurance companies, they all go over the reserve development, you know? and uh, explain why it is the way that it is and how it's always better. They're always strengthening their reserves, right? Of in course, the, in yeah. these things, they, their past was not good, but you know, they're good. No one ever has done a pick of an insurance company where, yeah. And no one ever picks an insurance company where they say, the stock's really cheap. Look, they're under-reserving, but it's okay. I never see that. Um, so they'll explain it. But the problem with that is sometimes you'll take that explanation and be like, oh, they were strengthening their reserves and all this and oh this whatever the cycle they compared it to some other companies and said they have um you know it seems to answer the question to you if unfortunately that's the thing that happens a lot they have to be careful of if you know a little bit about something like if you read how to analyze an insurance company like some book or article or whatever and that's all you read and you haven't read a bunch of 10ks then when you read a write-up you're going to know enough to be like oh, okay this is what i should look for check it's good, you know, um, but actually it's, it's not because there are soft sign things that say no. Um, and you can misinterpret signs about things. Uh, and who knows, but like I invested in insurance company thing one time and I took certain signs of actions from ratings agencies and stuff, I think more seriously than other people did as being very positive signs. Um, my auditors and, and, and ratings agencies and things like that. I think I interpreted differently than, than some other people did. Um, and that's just from looking at a lot of the other ones, uh, other companies and what happens with them and what you see happen in terms of the um, actions that they take on that stuff. Uh, so that's the, well, you really get hurt on like the, the too hard thing. Of course, Buffett talks about this, like it's not that your circle comments is too small. It's not knowing where it is, you know, so that you step out of it. Um, that's the big one is that you know something about the topic, maybe more than most people. I mean, yes, more than most people, but maybe more than a lot of investors, even investors and in, sometimes in those categories of stocks. But you don't know a lot of the more um, unspoken connections between things. The pattern recognition for stuff that isn't spelled out exactly is not so good. Like when we look at the quick FS thing, if your understanding of a company is sort of like that in terms of the 10K, you feel like you have a really good understanding of it, but it's really an understanding that's like the quick FS type understanding rather than a read you have of management of the strategy that they have, whether you think that makes sense of what risks that has, of what makes them unique compared to other companies in the industry. 
you know, that's the thing where it's like, then you probably, um, this might be where you're stepping out of your circle of confidence and it, it's a dangerous thing. But usually if you just read about lots and lots of companies and follow them, uh, you can fix that. That's the easiest is follow lots of companies that you don't invest in. Mm-hmm. Because your mind will just like imagine I could have invested in that. I thought seriously about it, and now look, it went down a lot. It's, it's very, very good because then you don't have to lose a lot of money. You yeah. go, I really considered investing in that, and uh, maybe it was fifty fifty if I ever would or whatever. The stock then it comes to a time where you see the stock's down fifty percent because of something happened to it. You remember it, and next time you remember that lesson from that, from following things in that industry and seeing which ones really got into trouble and, and which didn't. And that will give you more like um, uh, a more of an understanding of it, that of where that circle of competence is. But generally, you know, if you're saying, is it like too hard? Um, if you haven't tried yet, then it's, you don't know. But if you've like read the 10K and the investor presentation, and I always read the 10K and then I work backwards from there. Um, I actually read 10K, 10Q in the proxy statement. Um, I work backwards from there up to like the most simple, like for instance, if it was a value investors club right up, right? That'd be the last thing I read. The second to last thing I'd read would be the company's investor presentation. Um, the first thing I'd read would be the SEC things. And I go up as I don't understand things, see if stuff that they explained later helped me, but I'd never work the opposite way. Because if you're going to misjudge it, it's working the opposite way. It's reading the things that are targeted at investors, the pitches to investors, and then going down there to the 10K and actually never look seriously at the 10K from your own viewpoint, you were always colored by the way that it was presented to you. So, but, you know, huge numbers of, of industries are things that I put in the 2 pile for me. Um, and hopefully, I feel I understand that, that the circle of what I understand is wider than the circle of what I would invest in. You know, generally, uh, the, the, the thing is, and hopefully this would be true for you too, is you feel I have a pretty good understanding of this and I want to invest in it. My, you know, my understanding is pretty good, but it's not good enough to invest in it. So a lot of times people say you feel that you don't understand if I don't invest in it. I might feel I understand it pretty well. I don't understand it well enough to invest. It's not well enough as the kinds of things that we talk about sometimes here. You know? Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you are viewing, watching, listening um, the podcast, whether that's on YouTube or uh, the streaming side on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Uh, in this episode, we went over financials from quickfs.net. If you do want to sign up, make sure you tell them that you came from Focus Compounding in the checkout. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.